Off the Ball Daily. A home for your favourite podcasts from Off the Ball. The performance rankings, you had to be there, crappy quiz and a slight tangent. It's incredibly useful and why not do it just because you think it's agricultural. Subscribe to the Off the Ball Daily podcast feed right now. OTB AM With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, you're very welcome along. It is a Wednesday morning. We're in the aftermath of a 5-2 thumping for Liverpool at Anfield. We'll um, get the uh, thoughts from the Liverpool side a little bit later on. We'll talk to Graham tomorrow on the show. But we'd love to hear from you if you're a Liverpool fan or if you're you know, a fan of other clubs who might have been uh, getting some schadenfreude into you last night. It was hooked to your veins as the fourth and fifth goals were going in. Uh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about uh, the League of Ireland. You know, you, you asked for it. We have responded. And uh, plenty more besides including uh, statistical analysis of the first two rounds of the Six Nations to see exactly how we're playing. We're going to be giving away the state secrets a little bit later on. Uh, in the meantime, Shane is here. Morning, how are things? Cameron is here. Morning, how are things? Yeah, good. We're going to talk uh, rugby with Cameron in a few minutes' time and we'll talk to him about the various managerial changes that have come into his life in the last 24 hours. But we've got to start with uh, Liverpool. When it was 2-0 up, Shane, what did you think? Sticking. Uh, this is this is one of the great historic Anfield nights. The atmosphere is unbelievable. Uh, Liverpool's fans are feeling themselves. They're predicting a Champions League victory overall on, on Twitter. Um, and then shit hit the fan. And then what happened next was still one of the historic nights at Anfield, but for, for all the wrong reasons for Liverpool fans. I'd say the, the flights and, and boats home to, du- to uh, Dublin today and Belfast will be fairly sad, considering the, uh, the amount of Irish fans, no doubt, that went over to that game. Sublime to the ridiculous, I think, was the phrase used by BT and commentary. Um, Oh, it just yeah. I mean, it was also unbelievable. Oh yeah, it was brilliant. Like from Real Madrid's perspective, Vinicius first goal. Oh. I think we forget about just all the moments of genius that there were. I mean, in fairness, the opening goal was sensational. Yeah. <laughs> the the opening Liverpool goal was absolutely sensational. Like the the brains. The oh, he's great when he's on instinct. I was I was watching um, the BT coverage, which was really interesting. Mm. Like. The phoning over Stevie G it was really interesting. Oh yeah, every first question went to him. Yeah, and then the second one, you're like, I mean, the two last ones he's sitting here going, and then Rio just couldn't explain the goal. He's like, "There's a line here, and there's a line here, and you're supposed to put just put just put people in front of the, like, just do it." <laughs> and Michael, I was like, "That's not off the training ground. That's just opportunistic. I, mean, mm. I don't know. I don't know if this is true or not because like, there's not a manager in sight." <laughs> oh, sorry, Stevie G. I forgot. Sorry, yes. Sorry. I, uh, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was not on purpose. <laughs> that wasn't a bit. You managed your own club. Sorry. Yeah. For, yeah. yeah. Uh, black. <laughs> so, it, yeah, it was one of those. It was strange. Um, you'd almost forget about that goal. It's a pity now that that goal is going to be lost in the annals, the annals of history because of the way this tie looks like it's going to go. The front uh, three looked great for that first 15, actually for that whole first half. They looked absolutely great. Like they looked like they were in it together, and they knew what each other was doing. And there was like a nice confluence of skills. Klopp, Klopp saying afterwards it was the best they've played all season in that first part. But you still felt that Real were going to do something. Like it was quite open, too open in the midfield. After Vinicius scored, you were like, okay, this is going to be end to end. This is yeah. going to be goal. But you didn't think Liverpool were finished. Mm. I didn't. I. I I didn't actually think Liverpool were finished until it was over. Well, like, about ten minutes ago, you're like, okay. There's just nothing. No, the fifth goal typified everything that w- that was about that night. Like Modric just prancing forward with the ball, like he was oh, yeah. in thirty what thirty seven, thirty eight, thirty eight maybe, and then giving it over to Vinicius sets up Benzema. Uh, thirty seven, thirty seven. I mean, what a what a finish, what a team goal, and um, it's not thirty eight till September. Okay, 
Uh, he's got plenty of time. He's only he's only a baba. Um, very, uh, very energetic, Luka Modric. Very uh, high running, uh, late in the game. Very <laughs> impressive. I know football is quite reactive. A lot of people call saying, "Is this the end? Is this the end of this era of Liverpool?" It doesn't uh, always happen in one game at the end of an era, but it, it feels like that. Well, it's the direction we're headed. It's the end of the Henderson and Fabinho era, and it, it, it's it, I don't know. Will they sell Virgil in the summer and cash in on somebody and try and recast that defense? I don't know. I, it didn't. It didn't look like the end when it was two all. Like you would have said, they were right in that game, and you would have given them a chance to go to Madrid and do something interesting. It kind of felt like um, you know when you're playing FIFA and halfway through the game it says semi-pro seems too easy for you. Do you want to make me mm. take the step up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, start throwing the controllers. Yeah, maybe we should have been getting you to run the Virgin Games room if um, the machine is telling you that you're actually too good for the computer. Because it certainly yeah. hasn't been the case with Nathan so far. So, <laughs> uh, good morning, all. Can we talk about what Henderson was doing for the first goal? Uh, secondly, Modric at 37, burning the entire pool team for the last goal. Says Jody. Um, uh, morning, all. Haven't seen him for a while. Good to see Owen back. Although looking a bit worse to wear for the travelling. Says Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's amazing what the iOS girl do to you. Uh, <laughs> high heights. Of is it the woolly yeah. alpaca looking top? Is it uh, Vinicius Junior's top class? I mean, he's definitely like uh, right up there ah, in terms of world football. He's unbelievable. At the moment. Uh, yeah, Ancelotti said afterwards he's like he's he's up there as I think he said he's the most decisive player in world football right now. I mean, Marcus Rashford's probably knocking on the door saying, "Well, what about me?" But I mean, Vinicius is just incredible. That like that goal, that curled goal for the first one. You're like, this is what Vinicius does all the time. He's he's telling you what he's going to do, and then he does it. Well, we talked about it yesterday on the show with Mark Lawrence, and it's like, look, there are going to be chances, and at the end of it, it's going to be Vinicius and Benzema, and mm. lo and behold, um, I, the, there's a bit of misfortune. I think if they could have got to the break at two one. They might have been able to get in and kind of go, okay, maybe we don't need to be so heavy metal here, lads. But obviously, they are full-blown heavy metal, full-bore, and there's nothing they can do about it when the game changes. So, um, What were the goalkeepers doing last yeah, night? Yeah, you felt... Uh, did he say he carries his name too much this week? And now he was like Beetlejuice, just hanging over the affair at Anfield. It just, wow. <laughs> the Courtois one were, was hilarious. Yeah, which was worse? <laughs> the Courtois one was probably worse. I think the Courtois one was worse. It's like, what are, you, what, are you, what are you actually doing? Like He's usually very, very good at the ball at his feet, yeah. Courtois. Yeah. Um, and Alisson was just... Yeah. Somebody had the detail, it might have been Henry Winter, that Courtois has a tattoo of a wall on his arm after the Champions League final with the, the little... Uh, a big cup with the ears coming out of it. Um, uh, it was looking a little bit like. Here's the thing, though. You know, uh, he won the Champions League final with a man of the match performance, and so he's actually entitled to. Oh yeah, get all the tattoos you want. I mean, I'd have 14 tattoos on that. But I mean, so you know, last night if it had finished two one last night, he would have been a bit cheapish. But you would still have expected him to come back in the in the next. Like I don't know, the Allison thing, like. Is there has something else been broken apart from the the midfield? Isn't the only issue? It's obviously a big issue. It's huge. Fabinho is brutal. But Allison is not the same player he was. Yeah, but that's not a concern. It is a concern. Everything is like they've all come off collectively at the same time. You're just angling for Queen Calder. Yeah, this is what's happening. Allison's still a very good goalkeeper. <laughs> very, very good goalkeeper. I, I don't think that's if you're looking at that Liverpool squad for, in terms of a rebuild and a rebuild is needed. I don't think the goalkeeping position is. I mean, I'm all for Cuevin Kelleher getting the, the number one jersey. He's, it's not going to happen no, for Kelleher. They, they view him as a number two, clearly. And there's even that talk, finally, of him uh, looking for a move. So we'll see what happens. But if you're a Liverpool fan, we'd love to hear from you this morning. 0879 is the WhatsApp number. Um, here's what's going up between now 
and 10 o'clock for you. Garth Roberts is going to join us at around about uh, 7.50. Vinnie Perth's going to join us in studio at 5 past 8. Cathy McNamee is in Marbella uh, with the Republic of Ireland women's national team. We're playing China at 1 o'clock today. Derek McNamara is going to give us his thoughts on the opening two rounds of the Six Nations. And Around the World is there with, uh, at 9.15 this morning. Um, Cameron, you're actually here to talk rugby. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we before we get to the Ireland rugby situation, you had two new managers come into your life. You wait for one, and like the Dublin buses, they come they together. Come so, as a Leeds fan and a Connacht supporter, our resident Connacht supporter, mm-hmm. you had uh, two new head coaching decisions made yesterday. Well, I mean, I had one brand new one. Pete Wilkins has been coach, head coach of Connacht um, since earlier this year, uh, since Andy Friend became director of rugby. But uh, yesterday, they announced the news that. He is taking over um, permanently as head coach, and they're getting rid of that. He's going to have total authority over Connacht uh, for the next three years. Uh, so, three-year deal. He's been there since 2017. Uh, first came in as a defence coach. Um, has flourished under Andy Friend. He can't speak highly enough of him. Um, and yeah, it's really, really exciting. Definitely feels like there was a plan in place. He's had time to cut his teeth as a head coach this year. Um, the results have been mixed but um, it certainly feels like they're going to give him the space and time he needs to really um, implement his vision at Connacht uh, While the results have been mixed as in they started badly they've won their last three games so they're making this announcement in the aftermath of uh, an upswing in fortunes they're in the top eight in the table possibility they might reach the playoffs the fixture list is pretty friendly towards them pardon the fun, pun Yeah I mean those are all positives. I, I don't know if anybody watched the um, Zebra game at the weekend, but oh, it did not make for pleasant viewing. <laughs> oh my goodness, it was like the tale of Connacht's um, year. Where did they not score fifty points? They did, but they surged out and then they let Zebra get to within four points of them. It was thirty-eight, thirty-four. Didn't you feel alive? Are you not entertained? No, that's what it's all about. It shouldn't, yeah, not on. Zebre. Not Zebre who haven't won a game in the URC this year. Please, not them. And it's been the tale of the year for Connacht where first half, great, really gritty performance. Then whatever happens, we wobble and, you know, not in single spies, but in battalions, it just seems like <laughs> everything seems to go wrong. And, like, they regained their composure and... Uh, um, stretched their legs in the end and managed to see them out but yeah being a Connacht fan isn't easy no but sure look you know if life was easy we'd all be Man United fans and uh, I know <laughs> i tell you what we'd all be glory hunting front runners New, United New, fans. New England Patriots Manchester United to yeah. tell United fans the last 10 years that it's easy to be a United fan yeah well you know see how you enjoyed it did anybody catch you at the top of the Roll of Honour yet Oh no, wait, they didn't. Um, okay, so that's the the Connacht thing. We'll, we'll obviously come back to that, and we'll um, we'll try and get Pete on the show, and uh, just be interested to hear what his vision for those next three years is. But it's a good sign that they were they identified this guy a number of years ago. They kept Andy Friend on, obviously, because it looked like he was he was leaving, and they've managed to transition. And you know, that's a you hope that they've got somebody who knows intimately what the requirements of the job are and that they haven't made the errors in the past you'd imagine this has been known within the squad for quite some time like I know it's been announced now but surely this has been common Certainly, knowledge within I, I think the assumption when Andy Fran was going was that he was in the box seat for the job right. and so obviously he's ticked the, the correct boxes but uh, your hottest of hot takes is that um, we need to be worried significantly about Italy yeah 
Yeah, well, not significantly. I think I've climbed down a little bit because I uh, did some research last night and went, <laughs> okay, I oversold this piece just a touch. Hey. Um, <laughs> Way to, to hook them in there, Cameron. Yeah, i tell you what, if that's not a sell, I don't know Let what is. I'll tell you what I'm about to tell you. This is like going to be an okay <laughs> game for us, actually. You know, um, pretty much yeah, as you expect. There's nothing to Routine 10 point victory. You see, Cameron, if Italy go, go on and win now, what you have to do here is really go in on Italy. You can't be sitting on the fence. You've got to no, go for it. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention some flashpoints that we should look at for because I'm going to the game in Rome at the weekend. Oh, right. I can't Get that quiet. Oh, yeah. I can't wait because I'm uh, obviously Rome is a fantastic city. Uh, I will come back and I probably won't fit in the studio mm. when I come back. Carbs. What's the apart from the food? What's the nightlife like? Have you been before? I've been, but not when I was a nightlife out. going age. Um, All right. Well, that apparently matter. it's just nice. Quiet bars. There's not really like heavy nightclubs, although like the likelihood is we'll end up in an Irish bar or something at some point. Um, but I'm really looking forward to it. Love, love sightseeing. Really love food. Like really love food. So it's kind of the perfect place to go. But I'm really looking forward to seeing this Italy team in the Stadio Olimpico. Uh, certainly among um, rugby purists and rugby histers, they're probably everybody's second favourite team I would put them ahead of France now in terms of the way they play and I enjoy them um, and they kind of play with nothing to lose I think this is going to be a kind of like a Fiji November international where they'll rip us apart three or four times I think they <laughs> the stats yeah. show we only concede one try but uh, for Italy we will make an exception yeah. Oh, yeah yeah I think you know give them the benefit of the doubt they've welcomed okay, so us sell us, sell us the Italian dream well, they've got some fantastic players. They've got one player coming back who I'm really looking forward to seeing in Paolo Garbisi. He missed the first two rounds. Uh, he's been injured since the end of December. But he's a really interesting player. He plays much more of a kind of swashbuckling Marcus Smith type uh, role for Italy. Takes the line. He's played mostly at inside centre for Montpellier this year. Um, he's If Carberry starts, which I think people are starting to suspect might happen... Uh, he's a good stone heavier than Carberry, so be interesting to see him running down his channel. Uh, but he will get them ticking. I'd love to see him and Tommaso Allen play together, because I think we've talked about the ten twelve thing, two fly halves maybe not working, certainly for England. Italy's an example of a place where that might work, and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing if he starts and if he has... It's surely going to be Ross Byrne, though, right? We, we don't think it's going to be... Is, it, is, is there a, a, a surge for the... Certainly, the, that was the chatter online, is, oh, he's in, he must be starting, oh, which no. I was like, no, I no, don't no. know about that. That doesn't but, make any sense. I don't, I, don't, I don't buy that at all. I think no. that that would be a hugely out-of-character parachuting in of a player from outside the squad to the starting lineup when <laughs> Ross Byrne has been in the whole time. So I, I don't yeah, think it's When the whole be, talk was like, oh, he's not good enough to get into the squad in the first place and suddenly he's in that doesn't really make sense to me but that was certainly the. I guess I believe everything I read online that's the lesson here um, <laughs> these days but how about that Jordan Peterson eh <laughs> yeah it turns out interesting ideas um, but no they've brilliant players across um, a few different positions obviously we can talk about Ange Capuazzo all day and just the electricity he brings and Padovani should start with him it's a pity Monteglione's gone back to Australia for personal reasons because that back three would be electric. But Federica Ruzza, who I think Derek McNamara has mentioned in his sort of stats hit for today, he's exceptional. I think he's a brilliant, brilliant player um, in the second row. He's he has the highest win rate 
or um, wins, line-out wins in the Six Nations so far at 15. Um, he made 13 tackles against France, 8 against England. He's four tries in the URC this year. He's got a 95% tackle rate in the URC. Okay. He's brilliant. So they have enough good players to give us pause for concern and as you're swilling your red wine and stuffing your face with pizza, you're like, oh, these are, I, I predicted these are going to be this good. Oh, I'll be chanting Forza Italia by the end. Swimming in the Trevi Fountain. Swimming in the... Running up the Spanish steps. I don't know, it's a bit gross. Trevi, Trevi Fountain. All those coins and all that metal. Yeah. I don't know where those coins have been, Shane. A lot of good wishes in that fountain. Um... Okay, the other uh, new manager coming into your life is you're a Leeds fan. Were you happy slash underwhelmed slash like just finally somebody has decided to take us off the market here? Yeah, I'm happy that we have a manager. It seemed like for a while there we weren't going to have one because it's an awkward time of the year to be looking for a manager. January is very much over. You can't be bringing in players. You're in a relegation scrap. All the managers, Iriola, um slotted at um, Feyenoord they're all at the back end the business end of their seasons they're like uh, no we don't want to go to troublesome leads so getting Javi Garcia in or Javi Garcia I should say um, is very encouraging I think the, the talk around the club was Skubala was good for the United games but giving him the few extra when you're like oh maybe stay till the end of the season wasn't like the greatest move so having someone who actually has a vision and a plan and isn't an under 21 coach is a positive step in anyone's book um, be interesting to see what he brings to the club I know he saved Watford from relegation when he was there um, and getting dismissed from Watford I don't think it's no, no, you know, it happens to everybody. <laughs> enough reason <laughs> yeah happened to Marco Silva was Marco Silva Watford he was, wasn't it? Feels like he was. And he's a perfect man for Watford. Yeah, he seems like someone who Watford would have taken then and said no, and now he's doing really well at Fulham. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think Leeds have a brilliant squad. They just need something, someone to tap into it. Um, I certainly think we're better than West Ham, and it was very, uh, very disappointing a couple of weeks ago to not get the win against them. But I think we probably have enough. We just need someone proper at the wheel. Right, so you're happy. I'm happy. All round. Good to have a little bit of leadership in your life. And uh, some leadership coming from our commenters this morning. Neil McEnany says, Finnegan's Irish pub in Rome, lads. There's your recommendation Ah, oh, oh, there we go. That's what we go. I don't yeah. think you should go to an Irish pub in Rome. I just don't think that you should... No, just, no, no, no. You're you going to like one of the best food places in the world. You can't be going to an Irish pub. No. When I was a kid, I went to McDonald's in Venice. Ah. Which, I mean, when I think back now, it makes me sick. Venice is a bit of a shithole. It is. A, it, it is great. Compared to some of the other uh, Italian places. So like an amusement park. Hard, hard to find. The canals have dried up this week. Have the, they? There's, totally. a, there's a drought, so yeah, oh, it's it looks not, disgusting. It's not sinking anymore. No. Right, Cameron, good stuff. Thanks for that. Uh, a reminder, OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, the comments on Liverpool are coming through uh, as well. Oof, a lot of people feeling, as I said, a little bit of schadenfreude <laughs> about that, but the Liverpool fans not feeling any of that uh, Liverpool were beaten by a very, very good side. I thought Madrid were excellent. That's kind of the point here, isn't it? That like what might be lost in a lot of this is that it's the world club champions mm-hmm. who have some of the most successful footballers in the history of the game yeah. and some of the best young talent. Whatever about Arsenal having a great collection of young players. Uh, Real Madrid's collection of young players is even better. Not bad, is it? Um, Camavinga in particular oh, dominating midfield oh they're not getting near the team oh, it's, it's outrageous uh, did you notice Benzema when he was taken off was like muttering something in the bench and was like pointing 
he was pointing towards the, the Liverpool box where he had scored the goals and I was it was almost like he was laughing about how easy the chances were. I was trying to I was trying to gauge what, what he was saying to the fellow substitutes, but he seemed quite happy coming off the bench and thinking that was that was easier than we expected. Well, yeah. Uh, well, uh, let's see what it was actually like to be there. Gareth Roberts is with us. Gareth, good morning to you. Good morning, lads. Okay. How was the uh, the atmosphere at the end? Because we saw at the start it was like one of the all time great atmospheres for loads of different reasons, and particularly after fifteen minutes, it was like, wow, this is absolutely rocking. Yeah, it looked like it was going to be a, a classic European night, uh, all the way from you know meeting the bus and the, you know the all the the smoke, the fireworks, the the cheers, the shouts, and everything else when Liverpool were driving into the stadium. That really sort of set the scene. And then it really was the the, the, the decibels were through the roof um, for the first you know fifteen twenty minutes, and obviously Liverpool reciprocated with the performance on the pitch in that time as well. Um, but as you say, by the end, well, as you would imagine, extremely flat. Um, no one's seen Liverpool concede five at home in Europe before. Uh, now they have. Uh, no one's seen Liverpool take a two nil lead and then throw it away and lose five two in Europe, and now they have. Um, and, and you know, it's it's not just about the night. Obviously, it's about how the season's gone in general. I mean, I've found some of the sort of discussion of of fans to be a little bit strange. You know, like well, where, where was the atmosphere? What happened to the support and all this kind of thing? You know, Liverpool fans have watched Liverpool get beat eleven times this season, and that's difficult to take when you were close to a quadruple last season. So, you know, no matter how great of a supporter you are or how great of a fan you are, that hurts and, and that's difficult to take and that's difficult to watch. And, you know, for, for the team to collapse in the, manner, in the manner that it did, for it to be so flaky defensively, for it to give away daft goals to a world-class side, that is not easy to, to take and that, that is not easy to maintain, you know, the, the din that greeted the team when they first came out onto the pitch. The home form has been actually okay, largely, yeah. in, in most of the games. It, it's that away form where we'd seen that flakiness in defence against very, you know, traditionally mediocre teams, not the powerhouses. Um, but last night you were up against a, a powerhouse team playing at the peak of their powers, fresh from winning the World Club Championship. And it's like, this is what happens when there is a team full of confidence who comes in and has the technical and tactical ability that Real Madrid have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nine of the defeats of those 11 that I mentioned are away from home. And as you say, it hasn't been that bad at home. Um, but, you know, it's concerning um, to, to lose in that manner. Um, but, but, you know, you've got to give all the credit in the world to, to Madrid. Uh, they are world class. We saw what they did last season. They obviously went on to win it, but also not only going on to win it, but just the fashion that they kept coming back from the dead. And I think um, Jürgen Klopp said in his press conference before the game, that they're a team that, you know, no matter what, just don't seem to be flustered, don't don't flap. And, you know, there's the mistake by Courtois and, you know, he doesn't seem that bothered and neither do his teammates by that. And there just seem to be this sort of air of confidence about them, that, in, including the manager Ancelotti as well, that they get back into it, that they get chances, even that they'd win the game. Um, and that was how it unfolded. Liverpool, you know, to me, look like a side that are fraught with emotion. And sometimes that emotion can be used positively. And we saw that at the start of the game. But equally, it can turn on its head very quickly. And we saw that, at, at, you know, in the second half. The second half was terrible. Um, I don't think Liverpool have a shot on target until about the 65th minute. Um, and the heads went, you know, that, that third goal was an absolute killer. 
and they were all looking at each other, shaking their heads. I think you could hear um, Henderson have a bit of a papa Gomez and that kind of thing. Um, and that says to me about the fragility I'm talking about, whereas, you know, Madrid are the absolute opposite of that. They've got this real nous about them. They've got this confidence about them. They're unflappable. Liverpool are very flappable. Gareth, Jurgen Klopp used the word passive quite a, quite a bit in the, the, the post-match uh, interviews and press conference and, and certainly in midfield, Liverpool in particular were were quite passive. I don't. I feel like I'm always picking on Fabinho and I think, feel like we always are picking on Fabinho at the moment but he was really, really poor last night. Was he not good in the first 20 minutes though? Well, it not look like he was. It looked like he was at it last night in a way that I hadn't seen him. And I, and then, but then went off a cliff. Then there was a drop off. Yeah, there was little flashes. I agree that there was a little flashes from Fabinho of the old Fabinho. There was times where you know he was winning the ball. He was even going past a couple of players and things like that. And you thought, well, there's the Fabinho we know and love. The problem is he can't sustain it, and he definitely can't sustain it across 90 minutes. It's a problem for Henderson as well. And a thought as well, you know, for all the praise for Bajcetic, um, he's only 18 years old. He looks a fantastic player, but it showed up last night that he was 18 years old. It showed up last night that he was playing against someone like Modric, who's nearly 20 years his senior. And, you know, there's a time there where, you know, he's won the ball in midfield, but then he immediately gives it away. It leads to a Madrid goal. On one of the other goals, you know, Modric is, is walking through the midfield and Bicetic is trying to get at him. Now, I think even if it was me, and I'm nowhere near that level of a football, I think I would have brought Modric down. Yeah. I think, you know, that was the thing to do in take that moment. In. Yeah. And take the book in, absolutely. And he didn't do that. And again, that's just that little bit of experience that's missing. Um, and, the, you know... It's a, it was a strange game. You know, it's a strange game to even look back on because, you know, anyone who's talking about something like this, you'd always go back and you you take a look at the stats. And I think if you hadn't been the game and you hadn't watched the game and you look at the stats, you go, it looks like Liverpool have done all right. You know, they, they've carved out opportunities. They've, they've, they've had shots on target. They've had quality shots as well in terms of, you know, expected goals and things like that. But... Liverpool were in it. Second half, you know, it was all about sort of, you know, the quality of Madrid, the nous of Madrid, the brains of Madrid, and Liverpool looked like a team lost. I think the the thing that really brings it home for you, I, like, so Liverpool have obviously completely regenerated their their front line with the two signings, and everybody's like, ah, oh, they actually needed the help in midfield, and it's, that's true, they did need the help in midfield, but they also needed the help in the forward line. You can't stop; you have to keep regenerating. And when you look at yeah. Real Madrid. You know, over the last decade, they've had a midfield trio who have won five Champions Leagues in Casemiro, Cruz and, and Modric. And yet, two of those three weren't playing last night. Obviously, we know Casemiro's at Man United and Tony Kroos comes off for the last three or four minutes. But it didn't matter because they have constantly, every year, they've bought another midfielder who can learn from those and work with those. And, you know, Camavinga's only 20 and it looks like he could be there for another decade. Chimini wasn't playing last night. Yeah. Um, that's the bit where... For all of Liverpool's strength, the bit that got them over the line in the first place was buying the world-class players, a world-class goalkeeper and a most expensive centre-back that they could get who both had a massive impact on the team. But then they went away from that a bit and they got fortunate in that a lot of the players they bought really worked out. But that luck seems to have run out and that seems to be the difference between being you know, at Real Madrid's level and where Liverpool are at the moment. Yeah, it does seem that, you know, it's it's come home to roost a little bit in terms of how Liverpool buy players and what they do in the transfer market. And, you know, we heard from the the lesser spotted John Henry about sort of, you know, the, the idea of of selling the club and it now appears that that's not going to be the case and maybe a minor investor comes in. 
Um, he appears to sort of exude some kind of confidence around that and that there will be money to spend. But we've heard that before um, and it's not been the case. And, you know, Liverpool were, were running around in the bargain basement looking for a, a centre-half during the COVID season. Um, we saw something similar with a midfielder and Liverpool signing Artur, who, you know, we've seen in a minor competition for, I think it's 14 minutes or something like that. And that's it. Um, a lot of people could have told Liverpool, I'm sure, that he'd, that he'd had his worries with, with injuries and you might not see him on the pitch. So that that's not good enough for, for a, a club trying to compete at an elite, an elite level. Um, and sometimes, of course, we see emotion spill over with Jürgen. Sometimes we see him, you know, come close to the truth. But I think we all know anyone who, who talks in football, writes about football, works around football, that, you know, managers are almost politicians and they don't really tell you what goes on behind the scenes. And I'm sure if he could get into Jürgen's smoke-filled room and and have a true conversation with him about what he thinks about the whole situation, I'm sure he'd tell you that he doesn't think he's had the backing of the owners in recent years, and that needs to change very, very soon. I know Liverpool have been missing some players. You mentioned Artur and Luis Diaz, uh, Thiago is injured as yeah. well. Canate, I suppose, Gareth, is, is, is the big one. And, and yeah, you look definitely. at that right, like that right-hand side of that defence... They knew what they were going to come up against against Vinicius. He is an unbelievable footballer. But were Trent Alexander-Arnold and, and Joe Gomez a little bit, I guess, naive last night in how they dealt with him? I think so. Yeah, I think that's entirely fair. And Joe Gomez in particular had an absolute nightmare. I think his, his fingerprints are at the scene of the crime for every single goal. Um, and he's obviously hooked on 70-odd minutes. Um, he looked a broken man when he left the pitch. Um, he, he gives away... The free kick that leads to um, Real Madrid's third. Uh, he's obviously unfortunate with the one that comes off him, but you know at other moments in the game they're just drifting past him. Um, he can obviously, you know, people are pointing saying he can get tighter on Vinicius's uh, goal. I mean, I thought that was a world-class goal personally from inside mm. the stadium. I agree. I, thought, I, I saw the I saw the post-match from Rio Ferdinand going, "Oh, you've got to be more aggressive." And I'm like, uh, I mean, sometimes if everybody was always perfect in every incident. Then it would always exactly. be nil all, and we'd not be watching any of this because we'd be bored, senseless. Like you know, sometimes world class player does world class thing right in the bottom corner. You're like, okay, that's pretty good. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, exactly that. I think with Gomez, that you know, there's a bit of a worry that he's not looked great for some time now. Um, what I don't like is when people sort of wind back and start, you know, using hindsight and saying, well, why was he given a new contract? Well, well, he was given a new contract because not not so long ago. He was the preferred partner for Virgil van Dijk in a very good team. He was tipped to be, you know, one of the best centre-halves in England and all the rest of it. So he's dropped off a cliff, but he's not alone in that. Um, A lot of them have all at the same time. And and that's one of the biggest problems that Liverpool face at the moment. You know, they've still got an opportunity to push for the top four. Um, You'd have to say that this tie is done and dusted, even with, you know, away goals now not being a thing. The idea that Liverpool go to the Bernabeu and score at least three and don't concede any, you can't really see that. I mean, that would be, you know, above Istanbul and above Barcelona in terms of miracle comebacks, I think. So I'm sure they'll go there and and do the bit, but you really can't see Liverpool getting through. So it's all going to be about the league, about trying to get top four. But how much does this knock the stuffing out of them now? Um, They've got to recover quickly. They've got Crystal Palace at the weekend, quickly followed by Wolves, Man United and Bournemouth before they play Real Madrid again. Um, And, you know, things could go wrong fast, but equally, you know, they can turn it around. I mean, that that first 15, 20 minutes, you know, they score a goal of quality. They're obviously gifted another one. 
but you know that intensity was there and you know you mentioned before about you know Fabinho looking like his old self in the in in the, in that time you know Henderson was okay and that they all were but then very quickly you know the confidence is clearly fragile uh, physically can enough of the good players do 90 minutes uh, we're getting players back as well but I thought even that you know we've all been bigging that up and of course you do it's what you do as a supporter but you saw when Firmino and Jota came on that they looked rusty that they were miscontrolling balls in the box that ordinarily they would bring down and get a shot off and things like that so you know it's not quite the stick and plaster that we need yet we've got to play them back into form and the problem is we haven't we, you know we're, we're running out of missteps really you know we can't afford many more Liverpool you know, we're going to have to be close to perfect to be getting top four this season. Yeah, they need title-winning form, really. I, yeah. I mean, we say that, but there's a bit of a swoon happening at Newcastle at the moment. And if, for example, they were to lose the cup final at the weekend, or maybe if they were to win the cup final at the weekend, yeah. either way, there could be a hangover from that. So, um, flaky Spurs, not guaranteeing that they're going to finish in the top four either. So, there's 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 a window of opportunity for them when it comes to that but all of a sudden we're talking about that being the whole season from Liverpool's perspective um, one of our commenters says yesterday morning Real were a poorer team than last season but now they're outstanding Powell 74 I guess that is the point though um, we, we were talking about their league form with uh, Graham Hunter last week and it's not great but they did go away and win a world club championship in Morocco and they did seem to have like good bonding time and then they come back and all of a sudden it's the last 16 of the Champions League and this is their tournament so it's not yeah. massively surprising that they're able to pull out a top quality performance and I'm not guaranteeing that they're going to go and win the tournament after this but you wouldn't be in any way surprised if they were to play eight more good games this season finish second in the Liga and at the end of the year as is traditional you know at the end of the season Real Madrid pick up the Champions League they've shown last night didn't they that they've got enough quality to do that they've got they've got players there that can hurt any side in the world um, you know and, and amazing in a way to see sort of Modric and Benzema at 37 and 35 still being at the level they are you know Benzema looks like he's just playing football with a cigar in his mouth and you know the one that he puts in the top corner where he, he's gone around Alisson there's two players on the line you know, despite all that, you knew where it was ending up. You know, as you as you were watching it unfold, he's absolute class, Modric as well. So yeah, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't bank against them. And and I wasn't one, to be honest. That was like, I, I thought in a home leg at Anfield, I knew all the stuff that we saw unfold would unfold. I knew the atmosphere would be brilliant. I knew the fans would be up for it. I knew Liverpool would start with that intensity, and I hoped that that would be enough. Um, but I wasn't com- completely convinced about this idea that you know Madrid was shot. They'd only lost five games all season, all comps. Liverpool, as I say, had lost ten, um, and and that sort of that tells you where the two clubs are at. So it was always a bit of a. I mean, I looked at the odds before the game, and Liverpool were slight favourites to win at Anfield, but Madrid were the favourites to go through, um, and I think that sort of told you where where the two clubs were at and it, it, it's unfolded in the worst way possible for Liverpool obviously I know we focus on the, the Liverpool midfield a lot Gareth you know when they lose games but on BT last night I think it was Stephen Gerrard making the point that Real just have players who can take the sting out of the game and uh, in the middle of the park and Camavinga being one of them Modric yeah. obviously can do that is that what Liverpool need because in years gone by when they were having all that success like Henderson could do that players in the middle were, were constantly doing that for Liverpool but it, they just cannot take the sting out of a game at the, at, at the moment because a 2 nil up that's exactly what they needed. Yeah, and that is that is a problem, and that's been a long term problem. I think the idea of bringing in Thiago was was to, to do exactly that, 
I remember Peplinder's um, talking a couple of seasons back about sort of a plan B, if you like, because there was talk about Liverpool being found out and he was saying, well, we've got something up our sleeves. Well, when you put two and two together about what the time of that interview and what followed, it appeared to be that the plan was Thiago, um, someone who can put the foot on the ball, take the sting out of a game, that kind of thing. But, you know, Thiago's been in the side. He's, he's been at the scene of the crime for some of these defeats as well, unfortunately. So he, this season, he's not he's, he's not proven to be the answer either. Um, I mean, we, we, we keep going back and every time I, I come on here to talk about it, you know, the fact that Liverpool played every possible game last season, you know, I know Klopp said in his press conference, you know, how, well, when are we going to stop referencing that? But it, it appears to be one of the many problems. You know, that's a problem, fatigue, mental and physically. The, the injuries are a problem. We mentioned transfers earlier and that sort of Liverpool have knocked off in terms of going for top players and the missing out on players. And maybe, you know, they, we don't, we'll, we'll never fully know what got said about transfers and budgets and things like that. But it does seem a little bit like, well, you want to chew a many, but you didn't get them. There wasn't a plan B for a midfielder. Well, we'll just go and buy a forward then. But we still need that midfielder. And, you know, what I what, what was telling for me watching that from the stands yesterday was I don't, I absolutely do not want to get stuck into Bajcetic at all. I think he's done brilliantly to come in at that age and, and perform at the level he has. What was more telling for me was there was Naby Keita running up and down the, the touchline. We paid an awful lot of money for him. He's not paid it back and he's going to leave for Nottingham in the summer alongside probably Milner, probably Oxlade-Chamberlain. A lot of money needs to be spent on that Liverpool midfield this summer. So it's all eyes on the owners. There was a, a period of time where Liverpool's dealing in the transfer window was so brilliant that they were getting money for players who were essentially squad players and whatever happened over the last 18 months or maybe even three seasons, they haven't been able to recoup that money. And as a result, mm-hmm. the investment has been massive headline investment, but not enough of the Andy Robertsons coming through who are able to influence the team. And I, look, it's obviously a complicated, there's a jigsaw of reasons why last night happened. Um, I think that the main thing is that the confidence and the brittleness and um, uh, that ultimately end up coming back a bit to, to Klopp he knew what resources he had at the start of the season and it's fair to say that they've been underperforming in these games so um, he keeps saying he has the, the hunger for the rebuild the, the, the manic smile as the third fourth and fifth goals go in last night mm-hmm. it, it doesn't change and I, I'm sure it, it, it'll be his greatest achievement if he, if he manages to get them back to win a title or to, to win a Champions League so what's your instinct Gareth do you think he is here for the medium term at least I think so yeah um, I, I think you know he has got the absolute faith and trust of the owners the owners don't appear to be going anywhere as I said before I think the majority of fans you know despite what you may hear on phone-ins etc are right behind Klopp as well I think there's a recognition all around that you know the team obviously needs rebuilding. There's there's money needs spending, and that you know there's going to be a little bit of a period of transition. But you know, I for one, I'm right behind the manager. I think he'll stay. He's the man I want there to do a rebuild. I think if you get someone else in, you're talking about not just one person but a whole team of people. Um, and then and then you have the whole dynamic of well, what what players who are at the club get on with the new manager and what players don't, and that can make a transition even worse. 
I'd be sticking with him and I think he wants to stick with it. All right. Gareth, great to have you with us this morning. Thanks a million. Cheers, lads. Thank you. It's Gareth Roberts. Not easy coming on the morning after um, a crushing defeat like that. No. Um, Bohemian29 says, I was at the game last night. Fabinho shot. Trent finds himself out of position all the time. Gomez is too casual at times. I mean, you know, Trent was pretty good in the first 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, but Trent has been a problem all season, hasn't he? he unbelievable attacking player. Maybe not th- not this season as much as he was in previous years, but his defensive capabilities are just not there. Is Trent's ability, attacking ability enough of a reason to carry him? His defending is shocking level. You're nearly 1-0 down with him there. Sometimes he does amazing up top, but is it enough? He's basically James Prowse Ward playing fullback. <laughs> James Ward-Prowse like, what, what do I have to do? How many goals do I have to score free kicks yeah. before you get my name right? I know. Uh, I should get your name right too. ML89 for that one. 10 minutes past 8 this morning here on OTBAM. We're live each morning in association with Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. A reminder too, Braeburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of Off The Ball. Braeburn Coffee is coming to an Apple Green store near you with the new Braeburn locations popping up every month. Visit applegreenstores.com forward slash Braeburn to find your nearest Braeburn Coffee experience. OTBAM. With Gillette, get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Right, you're very welcome back. Uh, Kathleen McNamee is in Marbella. Uh, a, a tough sledding for you this week. Kathleen, how are you? Yeah, it's a challenge, guys. But, you know, I'm, I'm getting through as best <laughs> I can. <laughs> What's the weather like? So yesterday apparently was the first sunny day and that's when I arrived and hey. it was like 22 degrees. Oh, that's tough, isn't it? Uh, today is supposed to hit about 25, so yeah. This is like all... I did get a little sunburnt yesterday, but I also get sunburnt in Dublin on a cloudy day, so that's not really saying much. <laughs> uh, this is um, uh, the women's version of Saipan where they're going for, you know, warm weather training, conditioning, you know, making sure that the team is all bonded and gelled together. So, oh, so far, so good from an organisational perspective. Nothing happening that we to be aware of no not from what I've seen the team seemed very happy uh, they were complaining a bit that the weather wasn't all that nice up until yesterday but apart from that they just all seem like they're enjoying the camp no one seems all that stressed out uh, I tried to joke with Vera Powell that maybe she just enjoyed Marbella because it's the second time they've been here that she'd like to go down for to the beach for a little cocktail but uh, she wasn't having any of that so <laughs> it is serious business they played um, a behind closed doors I think or certainly an uncapped game against Germany already and then China today is 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 proper caps yeah so they played an uncapped game against Germany um, it was kind of weirdly split like it wasn't a proper 45 minutes 11 versus 11 they kind of split it into thirds and it was basically just a run out for the entire team um, I talked to Vera Powell yesterday and she was just saying that for her, it's really important to come to one of these camps and not just have the team playing each other for because the camp's ten days long. Um, so ahead of this game, she wanted them to have proper opponents. There was very little that came out about that game. Uh, they kept it very closed, um, because they just wanted to do, I, I suppose, like see how the team gelled with the new players that are there. Even yesterday, I stayed for the training session and about halfway through, they started playing a game and I was kicked out because Vera Powell didn't want people watching her tactics um so yeah tomorrow or today they'll play china in a fr- proper friendly which people can watch follow like off the ball there'll be updates for me there or you can watch on rte as well and it'll be interesting to see how she plays the team because from what i could see yesterday they were doing a lot of work of getting the defenders to play out from the back and it's something that we've long said that 
for this Irish team we want them to do a little bit more of so I'll be very interested to see how they actually line out The advantage of being there Kathleen is you get to almost press the red button and follow a player in training as you as you please and you've been keeping an eye in particular on, on, on some individuals uh, Aoife Mannion being one of them Yeah Aoife Mannion was really interesting because I've watched her a little bit in the WSL but obviously she's been out for the last while with an ACL injury and hasn't really played all that much for United since she came back and she looked sharp. I was quite impressed when I saw her in training yesterday. You know, she was one of the players that I noticed particularly that was kind of taking on that role of defending and then trying to play the ball up forward to the likes of like Denise O'Sullivan, Heather Payne. Um, and I feel like she could be a really interesting addition when I did my power rankings the other week. She was one of the players that I thought could maybe sneak into the squad. So I would love to see her get a cap today and just actually see how she does in that sort of match day situation. Katie McCabe's wearing a bit of strapping. Is that a concern or just a precaution or do we know? Uh, so the entire team is fit. Katie's, the strapping, she got a dead leg, so it was more of a precaution than anything else. Um, she wasn't wearing it yesterday when I saw her and then she was wearing it for the game that they played just against each other. Like it was just kind of a 5v5. Um, but she said just when she's in those sort of match situations, she just feels more comfortable wearing it. So I think it's just nothing to worry about at the moment. How many people are actually in this group at the moment and how many of them won't then therefore make the actual plane to go to the World Cup? So this is a squad of 33 uh, and then there's only 23 going to the actual World Cup. And the interesting thing with this is that when you consider goalkeepers in that as well, you're only looking at a squad of actually 20 players that are going to be playing. And plus, there'll be a couple of reserves there, um, but they won't actually be on the plane. They'll have to fly over to Australia. Well, I, I'm sure they'll probably set themselves up there, but technically they won't be allowed on the official roster because FIFA said that they weren't going to allow squads of 26 players, which the majority of coaches wanted. So it's going to be really tough. And like, it was funny just watching all the players yesterday, you know, they're all getting on really well. They're all chatting, having a laugh and looking and being like, at least 10 of you aren't going. <laughs> and there could, the thing is as well, there was a bit of talk around the place that there might be even more players that are going to join that aren't already in the Irish squad. So it's it's an interesting dynamic. All the players are very much like, yeah, no, we're delighted. All the new people coming in are great. They're lovely. And I'm sure they are. But you can imagine if you were in that situation, you'd feel a little bit on edge about who might be coming in or who, who might take your place. Yeah, you've got to be very careful about upsetting the squad who have fought tooth and nail to get to this point and then dropping a quarter of them for uh, people who have suddenly discovered that they want to play for the Republic of Ireland. Yeah, and I think Vera has talked about this quite a lot and said that, you know, it's for her, it's obviously really important and that squad deserves to be recognised, the fact that they qualified. But she is also very firm on the fact that I want to bring the best squad that's going to actually win matches and do well there. And I think even when you see the sort of opposition that she set up for the next couple of months, um, there will be another team announced uh, tomorrow about who they're playing. So... I uh, I don't think she she has loyalties obviously but I don't think she is also like absolute in those loyalties and she is happy to bring people in if she thinks they'll win. And I, I presumably the the players who were the best players are like well if it's going to improve the team I don't really care and we'll we'll make friends but we want to go and do as best we can so that's the kind of cutthroat nature of uh, high end elite sport. Um the contract conversation keeps coming up and then getting pushed to one side. 
Is there anything bubbling in the air about uh, whether or not Vera Powell will still be our manager after the World Cup? Not really. Um, she was kind of, when she was asked about it yesterday, she just brushed it off and said that her main focus is the World Cup and that she doesn't really want to think about anything beyond that. I would be surprised if she stays on, if I'm honest, because she's always said that this would be a short term thing. And I think she's probably already staying on a little longer than she intended to. You know, she said for a long time that she wanted to get out of coaching. Maybe the Irish situation has given her the bug and she's going to stay around for a bit longer. But I don't know. I just I have a feeling that this isn't a long term thing for her. I guess there is a lot of focus, Kathleen, naturally on the on these Irish eligible players that have come in, Della Harp and Mannion, uh, Marissa Shiva as well. It sounded yesterday from listening to Vera that she was considering a, another recruit potentially in the next camp in April. Like clearly, she's leaving no stone unturned in terms of a World Cup squad and players that that could come in. Yeah, like even I asked her about, so Australia are playing England uh, in Wembley in April. And I was like, are you going to be sending scouts over to that? And she kind of laughed at me and she was like, I have scouts and games all the time, like across Europe. My team is always looking for either new players or looking at how the team, like the likes of Canada or Australia, how they're faring, who we're going to be facing. So she and this is something Vera Powell has always been very adamant on is that she relies a lot on her team and she trusts her team to bring that information back to her. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are a few more players there. Like there was kind of rumors yesterday that there might be another one coming into the April camp. Um, but Vera was very adamant that she wasn't talking about it. So I, did, I didn't get any dirt on who it, who it may or may okay, not Okay, so be. No, no names just yet. Um, let's talk about uh, Megan Conley. We're going to play this interview a little bit later but we're going to play a clip of it in just a moment um, how important is she to the team and uh, obviously how glad is she to be back now playing at this level she's really important I mean she's been one of our best players throughout the qualification process and do you look at that game versus Finland like she was absolutely essential and really interestingly in that game yesterday she was like all over the place in terms of positioning. Like she was at centre back and we asked her about it and she was like, yeah, it's not really my preferred position. You know, I kind of prefer the midfield or on the wings, but I'll play wherever I'll play. And um, be look at that game against Finland. She played that game after her rib had punctured her kidney and she just played on. Didn't realise that at the time. Said like initially whenever I got hit, I was like, oh, that's sore. But the adrenaline just carried you through and she was like jumping around the pitch and uh, then it was only like a couple of hours later when she was kind of on her own and she said she was like passing blood. She kind of realized something was wrong. And a photo went up the next day on Twitter of her sitting in hospital with McDonald's being like, I'm OK, but I'm out for 10 weeks. Um, and so that was really she said that was really difficult for her because obviously she missed the Scotland game. She had to watch it at home with her parents, but she had a scan the next day. And I think that was kind of a couple of weeks out from her returning and she just saw that as like okay right I'm just going to enjoy this for what it is I'm going to enjoy the fact I'm with my parents and I'm celebrating Ireland going to a World Cup and I know I will come back and I will be better from it Okay um, and China should we beat them? Uh, I don't know if we will beat them like they're higher in the rankings than us they have like a great history in the 90s they came second in the World Cup and in the Olympics a lot of the team are based over in China. There's only a couple of players playing in Europe. Um, so I think it'll be a really interesting. They're a very technical side, which isn't necessarily something we come up against 
a lot and do all that well against but I think it'll be a very good training for the World Cup Alright Kathleen good stuff uh, enjoy the sunshine and the game of course and all the work that you're doing in uh, sunny Marbella uh, not Thanks a, guys Not a spot for gangsters and socialites <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know which one of those I fall into. But. There you go. <laughs> uh, more from Cathy, of course, uh, across the day on Off the Ball social channels and also on tomorrow's show as well. A reminder OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Here is a bit of that chat with Megan Connolly in Marbella. We'll play the full interview a little bit later on in the show. Vinnie Perth up next. It was one of those ones that I accepted quite quick because it was a bone and, a, and an organ that I couldn't, you know, and we had won the game, so it was worth it. You know, and we had got to that position. Um, I think it was a lot easier to just accept it, um, especially the campaign we had. I think it was something to be really proud of. And I think, obviously, the the last two games, the game before the Scotland one, um, to secure that if we actually beat Scotland uh, and results went the way that we would have went. But, yeah, I think when I was at home, because um, that was about the six-week kind of mark for me, so I had a scan the next day. So I was like, right, I'm just going to spend it with my family, um, which was tough because, like, you know, emotions are everywhere. My dad was watching, everyone's watching it. But honestly, it was like, I wouldn't change it. Like, experience it with my family who have been there throughout everything. Um, and just seeing their reactions as well uh, was nice. <laughs> I know that was that was my brother. I didn't know he was doing it. It was like, honestly, since Amber scored, it was the longest time ever. And I was just sitting on the edge of the seat, just like... And then you can hear my dad like cheering in the background, like, we're going to a World Cup. So, yeah, I think it was just like, everyone was just so proud. That's Megan Connolly speaking with Kathleen. It's 8.24. Vinnie Perth is with us. Vinnie, good morning to you. How are you? Morning. All good. Um, I want to talk to you about the uh, opening round of the League of Ireland, but a bit more generally kind of following up on some of the stuff you were talking to Nathan about last Thursday. Um, there was a presentation given yesterday by the new League of Ireland Academy manager. I want to get the job title exactly correct. Um, Richard was also yep. in the papers today Richard Dunn talking about uh, how he wants to be a manager I'm like oh you guys putting together some kind of dream team mm-hmm. ticket are you is that uh, break we, some news for us this morning we were out at um, Ireland under 15 development squad played on Sunday actually Till was out watching it in the AUL so uh, it came up for a discussion again so um, it's up to him to get a job somewhere and I'll like, follow in suit it's like Rafa Benitez popping his head up in the papers Richard's doing the same thing no it's a bit different in fairness <laughs> uh, yeah but that's the gig isn't it you put yourself out there and then the jobs are meant to follow yeah so um, yeah so Will Clark the LOI's academy coordinator yesterday was um, giving a presentation talking about um, what they're doing look I, I know no, the conversation comes around and there's a lot of uh, we're miles and miles and miles and miles behind and that's true right I I, yeah. I accept that you, you made the point about Luton Town and the number of employees that they have um, for their academy fire it strips the entire country here but at least the beginning of something is happening with this survey that they're doing of and, and the certification of all of the underage teams yeah. it's work that should have done best, best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago yeah. second best times today we're, we're planting a lot of saplings yeah, no, I think there's a huge amount of heavy lifting being done and being done. And, and anyone that knows anything about League of Ireland football will, will speak like they talk about bringing in, say, over the years, it's always been bring Brian Kerr into the FEI, bring. And they were all legitimate arguments. But someone like Will Clark, who uh, the success St. Joey's have had over the last 10, 15 years, Will has been right middle centre of that so to bring someone in with that experience who has helped so many young players move to the UK right in the middle of, of the FEI is is really good and 
uh, it's gone under the radar so appointment like will for argument's sake so that's a really positive step um, I suppose when you do things like where we ended up in the discussion last week was uh, the amount of feedback I've had as a result of it has been huge Some, a lot of positive but all, always people have um, um, oh, you sort of left this out you left it you got this little bit wrong that bit wrong but I'm okay with that I'll, I'll, big broad shoulders I'll take that at least we're having discussions and we're moving on a little bit and I think um, yesterday's announcement is another sign sorry of yes we're starting to make progress normally we had these conversations after we've been beaten 3 or 4 nil or 5-1 by Denmark and go wow what's the problem why can't the league produce players and uh, it's better if we start having them on the basis of full houses at most of the grounds in the opening yeah. weekend of the league the news coming through that a million tickets are going to be sold but still no overarching presentation no some nobody from the FAI going this is great everybody come on give us more money government because Charlotte Burns was in here last week on GA deserves more money from the government yeah and I, I think um, we could we could probably do with uh, the FEI hierarchy being a little bit louder I would say it's not really my responsibility to fall out with a couple of people and get a few text messages and, and there's a certain amount of people within the FEI who who made contact to say you were absolutely spot on more people outside the FEI should be saying it so um, I, I suppose like I made a huge amount of points and some people have made a lot of points back but I think the key is we're doing really well despite what we have that's are, the what, key um, and as a matter of interest when people are being a little bit defensive or when they're saying you're doing what are the points of discourse that they're going actually we need to talk about this um yeah, well, like, take take the comment I made about Evan Ferguson. Um, like, it's very easy for someone, say, associate or a fan of Bowles to go, what's he talking about? You know, you know, we were we, we developed Evan through Kevin's blah, blah. Yes, done an unbelievable job. But And no League of Iron team will ever be able to replicate what Brighton have, I would say, probably in their lifetime, because it is seven-star hotel stuff, what they have, the training grounds, all the stuff all that stuff but I still go back to probably the best training ground in this country is now potentially balls in terms of DCU um, that that facility they have will be very good but it's I mean the shining light is Shamrock Rovers uh, doing ama- amazing work out in Roadstone but by and large you've got a, a, a gym inside an indoor hall you've got an AstroTour from one grass pitch between the whole club that that has to change for us to make our young players better. Uh, they've done amazing work. Uh, Shane Robinson done amazing work. We all hear of Shamrock Rovers. They are now uh, become sexy for people outside of the League of Ireland. You know, um, the League of Ireland sort of family. There's starting to be more people go. And until we make um, our facilities better, then we're going to have a ceiling, and and we have to realise that. And that's my argument about underage football, and and even first team football breaking the scene. The, fl- the flight over to England, Vinny, was part and parcel of a development of a young player. You know, ten, twenty, thirty years ago from Ireland, but is becoming more of an option now to to stay here and develop and 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 kind of play into your mid to late twenties in Ireland. No, it's not an option. It's it's you've no choice. That's the that's the problem. So I would say to you that, uh, and I, I'll openly admit this: if I had a, a son who was fourteen, fifteen, sixteen now, who was an outstanding footballer, and listen, remember, you never know how they're going to develop. I would consider moving to England 
as a, a to give that child. You'd be um, like Federico Makeda, the yeah, dad working in the ground at. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but like, what's the point in denying it? I would. Okay, right. I would. Yeah, okay. because to get to the very next level, depending on on where that child is, and and I like it, I don't like using Evan because actually very close to his family, and but I use it as the example to say next month or a couple of weeks time against France he's most likely going to play a huge part in it under current rules uh, and you're talking about the very elite players he'll only be over in the UK for five weeks he wouldn't be ready to play a senior international just wouldn't is it the level of coaching is it facilities is it everything that's better over there no it's not just coaching but it's 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 the whole package um you know of an example of a of a young kid who is injured at the moment uh, in a league of Ireland setup and I'd be very loose with this information but it, you know I can stand over it who is injured and he's seen a physio twice in 6 weeks you're at, you're at any sort of academy in the UK. You're with a physio every day. If you're injured, you're at... And all of that stuff has to improve. But, uh, like, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole. Like, I sat in Richmond Park, and it was brilliant on, on Friday night. Mm. Uh, sold out venue, two really good sides going for each other. I'm saying, we're actually... We're, we're there if we can just break the ceiling. And it's not going to happen... Yeah, overnight not going to turn up with loads of pitches today or tomorrow but there has to be a real serious argument about how do we link everything together now and Why to be fair that was the start of it Will has made it, uh, his announcement yesterday um, alongside Richard Dunn so hopefully that's the start of people asking questions um, the, the Evan Ferguson point has a, any idea how they managed to get him through what well he was probably the last one that right. then the rules the Brexit rules obviously they kicked and, in and FIFA rules kicked in ok yeah. Um is there any argument that if Evan Ferguson had stayed in the League of Ireland, at 16 he would have been first team, at 17 he would have broken all the scoring records, and at 18 he would have moved, and there would have been a clamour for him to be in the squad, but I, I, I accept the point that he, you know... Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, th- who knows? But then, then, look, we're talking about the outlier as yeah, opposed to... Yeah, who knows? And yeah. I, I, I just, I'm just making the point that... Um, he would just have moved over. He would just have moved over. We don't know is the honest answer, and it's e- it's very it's probably lazy comment by me, and it's easy to throw that out. But it's a it's very stark reminder that uh, yeah. the rules as they're set up at the moment are yeah. And, he's and, going to be the last of those. And there was too many kids going away at thirteen and fourteen, and um, we've all done anyone that's played has done the trials. I was away myself for two weeks as a young kid. Didn't like it. All of that stuff. We've all done that stuff, but. We have to get a happy medium here and we have needed English football to help us. I've always made the argument that uh, we have to stop using that as barometer but at the same time we've needed English football to help us for a national team and um, we shouldn't forget that. That point that Jeremy makes about Jonathan Burns being in here last week, the, the GA president-elect, like, are the GA vo- vocal enough in terms of lobbying for money from the Irish government compared to rugby and, and, and the GA because certainly rugby and GA in Ireland make no bones about looking for money and, and resources and, and why wouldn't they? But but should the League of Ireland be doing the same? Yeah, they should be. Like we're, League of Ireland has, has been, I suppose, what, what the problem child for the FEI for a long, long time. It's now not, to be fair. Um, my concern is is that um, the League of Ireland people have to keep fighting within the corridors of the FEI not to become the problem child again. Okay? There's a, there's a bit of a... You know, I think it's important. That's why I think a lot of League of Ireland fans will root for Stephen Kenny over the next year and 12 months because I think it's important that um, we don't lose our seat at the top table in terms of 
of, of what we mean and it doesn't become association again around the first team of the senior and the women's teams it becomes association for the for Irish football so I think it's really really important that that um, gap is bridged um, and there's a League of Ireland voice at the top table so because ultimately we need it we're starting now to see a huge um, a huge amount of players moving to the UK the, the pool uh, um and the depth of the players over in the UK is huge. Yeah, you you actually put together um, a team of, of players uh, who've moved over in to England and Scotland. Uh, how how recently is this? So sort of in the last twelve eighteen months, and that's part of that's part part of <laughs> in many ways our success is now starting to potentially hurt the league. Um, there's a lot of players now coming in on loan from the UK. I've seen three players sign yesterday in, from from the UK on loan. One from we've a real shortage of of players in in League One now, which is a flip side of a huge amount of players going to League One, League Two. Yeah, we've a real shortage, and we see. See, um, I don't like being negative. As I said, I was at an amazing game the other day. It's very easy to sit here and say everything's great, everything's brilliant, the product is brilliant. But now every club, I mean, you look at Sligo, there's four or five people from from all different parts of the world. That was never the case. And while you know we welcome it and it's good to bring new players into the league, we've all done it. We're we're probably short of Irish-based players now to come into the next team. Okay, so that's kind of an unintended consequence of players reaching a certain level where they're cheap to League yeah. Two and SPL teams, and they're getting hoovered up, and then their players to replace them aren't just there yet. No, it's just not there yet, and that seems to be the, uh, a big problem. We've also got we've got um, down in Waterford, we've got Fleetwood who who bought Waterford, and they've they've started to use it t- to an extent as a bit of a feeder club, giving some of their young players an opportunity. They've also you see these signed Phoenix Patterson from, and he so so last week in League One. Um, Phoenix Patterson crosses and Promise Amateurie scores a header. Fleetwood win the game 1 0. That's a Waterford player and a Bohemians player. Up until five years ago, very few of them players went away. And and the team, or the sort of squad I put together, and I'm probably missing one or two, I've, I've gone away. But but the, the highlight, sort of a, a League of Ireland problem for a second is so many of these players, up until I would say five years ago wouldn't have went away it would have been a rare exception a guy went to a League 1 League 2 or a championship club but we've lost a full squad that's potentially a league winning squad that's a strong that's a strong team there isn't it yeah like that for me that team could could probably win a league so, so therefore is there enough competition in a league will be our challenge over next year or two ok so in goals it's McGinty from Sligo it's Cotter of Pats uh, Liam Scales McNally of Pats and Lyons of Rovers that's your back four uh, Dozen Devoy Bowes Ross Tierney of Bowes Danny Mandre of Rovers is your midfield three Yeah, Georgie Kelly come off the bench uh, last night um, Promise on a cherry and uh, Patterson. Yeah, so even on the bench you've got Kevin uh, uh, Phillips from Drogheda who went to Crystal Palace making huge tries there, young boy. Um, Kieran Kelly has is, is, is gone into League Two. So I'm saying that team would be top two, that squad. And we we never used to lose them. So someone like um, James Brown left Drogheda, went straight to Blackburn. Back back four or five years ago, he would have ended up at a, a Dundalk or a, a Bohemians or a, sorry a, a, a Rovers or a Derry, 
and a lot of clubs are missing that now so you see Derry um, bringing in Young O'Neill from Fulham on loan because they needed players in the squad and were having to go outside of the Irish market there's a real shortage of, of, of quality on the way uh, Is there a supply and demand issue then? Do, do the league does, do the, the uh, clubs start to look to it's obviously cheaper for them to have players coming through their own system yeah. and it's more beneficial for them instead of taking somebody from loan on Fulham you know if you yeah. can get a player of similar quality through your own system they play for a season or two hopefully you give them a three year contract and in the middle of that they get sent over and they get the transfer so like is this a teething problem or is it a long term structural issue that can be fixed um, time will tell I feel it's it's probably a long term issue that the gap between under 19 football to, to first team football is quite big um, we've also seen um, on, on this point here to, I, 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 I don't know I've met Fleetwood's uh, CEO a couple of times and really good people have been in their club and I've never discussed Waterford with them it was, it was for different reasons over there looking at them but it looks like we may have another championship club on in the League of Ireland club over the next week or two as well. Hull City. Hull City. So, what what thing in that story do you think? Well, there seems to be something in the story, yeah. And uh, to what level, to what extent, um, I don't know. But the point I make about that is we could have like a championship club and a League One club on in two League of Ireland clubs. Um, We have to question that. Is that is that designed to get around the Brexit is that designed to get about young players from huge amount of young players from Ireland have real value in, in the UK now and we're seeing that with, with the squad I just put up we have to question is that a way of them getting them players over on small amount of money or is it a way of the, the, the bar to get a, a guy from Estonia now or Latvia or anywhere into English football is really high in terms of the criteria that's needed that he probably come? needs to play um, X amount of international games. Okay. Um, Whereas if they the come to Ireland and play for a season or two, they might get. So, so the criteria is based around appearances in a top level of or in a sort of in your league. So if you played over fifty percent of the games in Irish football, may meet the criteria in England, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's all different uh, criteria in the UK. So. The, it's just an opportunity for them. We, we've seen it with like Man City buying a club in Belgium. This is just a, a smaller version of it happening here in Ireland. Um, and there could be benefits too as well. Yeah, I, That's the thing. It's a, it's a complex situation where um, so the, the two lads are obviously overscoring and um, we'll benefit from that if they get up a level and yeah. play in the championship next season and hopefully make it to the Premier League in two or three years. And suddenly it's like, oh, that pathway where they've come through is good. The money trickling down to the clubs who actually isn't isn't enough yet. We haven't cracked that bit. Where yeah, so, so but I suppose that's the bit. The only thing I'll say to you is Waterford. Waterford are full time in in the first division, which is like bizarre from a League of Ireland perspective. But if you're involved with Waterford, I know I do know that. Like um, when you get English people involved with Irish football, put. I, that's probably the wrong way of putting it, but they understand that players should be fed after after matches. They understand players should be fed after training. They understand the, the equipment should be full time. And sometimes we've been a little bit slow here to realise what real professionalism is in Irish football due to cost, etc. So I would say Waterford are more professional than a lot of teams or not a lot, but certain amount of teams in, in the Premier Division and they'll be doing their business right. So there is real strong pros about it it gives a real opportunity 
We just have to keep an eye on the motive of it. That's the only question. Yeah, OK. And and how it skews everything else. But if it's a rising tide that sets some standards, yes. so long as there is some Irish ownership or... Well, if Hull want to buy Dundalk and, and take up that plastic pitch and put down a grass pitch, that's straight away, that's a win-win if they're going to spend that money. Yeah. But we don't. Like, that's further down the line obviously but we'll see Okay uh, Really important for the league that we have a title race to, to bring everybody along Good of Slagger Rovers to do the rest of the league a favour by scoring in the 97th minute <laughs> to draw one all with Shamrock Rovers Yeah that, that's still my concern this year I've seen what is perceivably second and third um, Derry and Pats I think you've seen a lot of teams have a real slow start to the season and that's part of of the problem because so many clubs are signing players on loan in the last week or two. There isn't a rhythm to the teams in the first game of the season. Um, the challenge for, say, Derry, uh, for me, was 1-0 up, 20 minutes to go. They should, League winning teams win that game 1-0. They had enough about them to win it. Probably didn't manage it well enough. Gave away a lot of free kicks and corners and, and ultimately Pat scored. Um, but you'll only get away with losing four to five games a season and drawn four or five so already you're on the back foot but you would imagine I still say Rovers are there and, and probably comfortably ahead and I don't see the title race as close as other people do but hopefully I'm wrong and have Rovers added enough this year in this off season to compete at a higher level in Europe than they managed last year do you think well my initial uh, is is probably not probably not um, and the challenge for them is the squad is so big it's so good it's full of talent like Trevor Clark is a brilliant signing Liam Bort from Bohemians and David Marcus Poom on loan from Flora Tallinn whose his father was, mm. was Marcus Poom uh, he, he by all accounts is a really good player but to treat them in and isn't enough to go to the next level where you could see them winning games in, in, the, in the conference league group stages probably not uh, but at the same time they have a really strong squad and you can only have so many places and, and that is the challenge uh, uh, I've had it before and I understand how difficult that's going to be for them Alright, Vinny, good stuff great to have you with us thanks, thanks a million so. it's uh, 8.44 this morning uh, John Duggan's up next first here is some Kenny Cunningham talking about Liverpool's individual errors last night and it's it's more what you're describing there which is those those small mistakes yeah. Gomez, Bacetich and they yeah. just get punished. Yeah, and it's amazing, Joe, because even in my career, I always found even the the the, the level, the highest level that I got, to, even like in international football, and just kind of you know professionally, whatever, never played in the Premiership. For me, the basic principle still applied. Even the higher that you went, you know, just do the basics. Even at the highest level, it used to cost you. You know what I mean? Just yeah. switching off. You know, a runner having an extra touch to you know going to ground when you should have stayed in your feet. You know, going tight to a play when you should have dropped into this. All the all the basic, the fundamentals yeah. of kind of defending. Let your talk grow up still apply even when you're playing at the elite level. And we've spoken about a few of them tonight in relation to a couple of the goals Liverpool have conceded. So you're right, actually, in terms of Liverpool's kind of collective defensive structure. I actually, things stood up quite well, particularly first half, um, which was great to see. But within that, you know, just individual errors. And I'm not talking about. I know, I know there was an error from. Alison a big error in relation to the second goal, but the other goals, just, just small little errors like decision-making, positional sense, you know, have just cost them. This team has been absolutely ruthless.
There you go. That's uh, Kenny Cunningham uh, in the moment last night. Allison has been the best keeper in the league this season. Easily Liverpool's best player, says Michael. Allison is still the best keeper in the world, says Brian. Henderson and Fabinho need to be shipped out. Henderson has been an issue for 18 months or more. He's finished. He's finished. God, uh, I don't know if Allison's the best keeper in the world. Badger turned on the hand and gripped. <laughs> He's up there. He's up there for sure, Allison. But um, I think there are there are better keepers in on form at the moment. But yeah, as I said earlier, he's not the problem. There are there are many problems at Liverpool. One of like the seven year itch is, is a thing. I don't know, if John, if you agree with the seven year itch with Klopp and whether he has the ability to rebuild a, a successful team. I think he's got the ability, but I think there's been a brain drain there at Liverpool recently yeah. upstairs, and I do think that this needs. To, maybe he's been a bit too loyal to players, and it's hard not to be loyal when you reach the the end point of every competition last season. Which he did winning two cups and reaching the end of the league and reaching the end of the Champions League. But it's obvious, it's evident that there needs to be different players in those 11 positions, in certain positions next season than there are at the moment. Yeah, I think they thought that Luis Diaz uh, was going to be yes. a free radical in that and allow them to continue that high intensity. And I think that they thought that Darwin Nunez was going to be that too. And I think they thought that Cody Gakbo was going to be that. And it turned out that um, that area did need all that. But at the same time, they actually needed and the injury to Kanata has meant that they haven't got him to bed down into the team just yet so it's kind of a, a sequence of things which if you take them all in in their like small bit two midfielders in the summer and actually they could yes, they I think still be tied to next season midfield is the big issue it's big, like you're relying on a kid who, who could be a great kid but he's a kid an 18 year old there been playing in the middle of the park last night Fabinho and Henderson you'd have to say on the basis of the evidence recently, are not uh, players that you might want to see in the Liverpool midfield next season. They've conceded 18 goals in 10 games. It's not just defensive errors. It also comes from the fact that your defence needs to be protected. Uh, and that's one of the issues Liverpool have. And it's just, it, it's almost like they're at 5% battery on a the phone. They're able, like for 20 minutes last night, they felt, oh, this is going to be you know, another great Anfield night. And then it's a 90-minute game, not a 20-minute game. So that's what I kind of felt last night. At the same time, Real Madrid, holy hell. Yeah. That is like, I mean, to just be able to whip that out from 2-0 down, a little bit tired, La Liga form not great, looks like Barcelona are going to cakewalk the league, and everybody's kind of like, oh... Uh, it's a bit like Toulouse in the Rugby Cup, isn't it? Mm. Uh, when Toulouse weren't winning France Championships, but would always turn up in Europe and do it. Actually, uh, he might be going to Brazil. Yes. Uh, no, sorry, we're just going to win the Champions it, League. It, 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 it's, it, it is the, it's the psychology, though, almost, of, of winners. It's like when Man United are winning all those league titles under Ferguson. It's the psychology of uh, being a team that is the Royal Madrid, obviously, Real is Royal, that they are the establishment, and they know that they're the establishment... And they can bring players like Vinicius and um, Rodrigo into the team and, and make them stars. The scary thing about how good they are in the counter-attack is that Liverpool have to go for it at the Bernabeu, which leaves them... No, that's all, the game is over. Yeah, but that, that, this is my point. It could, could get embarrassing in terms of an aggregate score because they'll be open then to, to further counter-attack. Wasn't there, wasn't there a game like this where Brendan Rodgers picked a B-team? Didn't that happen? And they, Can't do that, they battened down the hatches. Klopp's not going to do it. Like Klopp is going to... Yeah, go for it. Yeah. I'm just very interested to see what's going to happen to Crystal Palace now, Saturday night. One of, of all the places, Palace, on the night... Oh, the ghosts. Uh, mm. uh, of, of all the places, on, on a night, it's, it's, it's a really good atmosphere. Um, and Not the place you want to be going after again. No, right I, I don't think so. And they're playing the counter, so... That'll be interesting to see. The Palace are pretty crappy at the moment. They are at the moment, That's yeah. the... And maybe they'll, they'll make an exception. They beat United under lights there at, at Sellers Park. They, like they're good against the big teams. <laughs> Generally speaking, they 
They seem to have won on the weekend, didn't um, Tonight we've got Man City against Leipzig, no De Bruyne, and no Laporte, and no Stones. I was looking at Leipzig, are what, fifth in the Bundesliga at the moment, Inter Porto, and Napoli, uh, the most under radar team in, in Europe at the moment, won 2 0 last night. We're Napoli are sensational. They're unbelievable. They are unbelievable. Now, the, the, the point is they've won Serie A. Well, they're. Amazing. Like, they haven't won it since Maradona. But can, can they. They've, only, like, they've never won it outside That's Maradona. crazy. Imagine the scenes in Naples. 1990. So can they, they can focus on the Champions League massively because they have that 15 point gap. I don't know if they, like I don't know how much it's going to help them, but you'd fancy them again, like to, you know, if they came up against a Real Madrid or a Bayern, it would be a cracking game. I'm not saying Napoli get over the line, but they, they have every chance of winning the Champions League. So what else we got today? We have what the Wales decision. What's going to happen there? There are players meeting the professional rugby board. I can't understand how they've let this drag on so late this week. Like, <laughs> do you know? Uh, it's it's got to the point of the brinkmanship where it really looks like a strike is a very strong yes. possibility. Over seventy players don't know their futures, and it's, this game is worth ten million to the WRU. And you'd have to think, like I was reading Jonathan Liu talking about the fact that they haven't cooperated with the Netflix people uh, over the sick, you, you, like all that CVC or C investment in in rugby and all that kind of private equity that's gone into rugby. Surely there's somebody in the, in those organisations making calls, going, "Can we not just sort this out?" It's amazing that it's got to this, as you say. Even Gatlin seems surprised. It, like speaking yesterday, he seems surprised that it's got to this. Private um, equity, notoriously, you know, not pro worker though. <laughs> they might be like, ah, oh, it's like, oh. so it'd be interesting to see what how those conversations are, are happening. But definitely, if you're going to protect your investment, the game has to happen, lads. Yes, mm. the game has and, to happen. And, and we, we had like for obviously different reasons, much more serious reasons, and the troubles. Like there was games not fulfilled in 1972, for example. Uh, Wales and Scotland didn't come to Dublin. Um, we had obviously foot and mouth games delayed and that but it is amazing that they haven't I wonder what footage Netflix have of all this I know they were kicked out of some of the meetings understandably they didn't want to have the Netflix cameras there hovering over them but I'm sure they have some but the Netflix deal footage. is also worth like 150 grand or something yeah like it's piss ant money compared to the 10 million for this fixture oh, yeah broadcasting like, and stuff yeah um, you were saying there was a, a good interview with Gavin Henson in the yes. London Times today. Brent Adventure stuff was funny. Makes some of the Irish papers as well. He's he himself and his missus are going to the game, and it's the first time he's been back uh, at the Millennium, whatever it's called. It's party. And um, uh, it'll be his first time back in a match. But the game might not be on. <laughs> what was the Brent Adventure stuff? He was wrestling with Brent Adventure at half six in the morning because I think Brent Adventure was just wanted to test him a bit, and Henson's gone. What? And they ended up wrestling. Wrestling matches on purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was scheduled wrestling as opposed to yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and just funny stories. And he's running a pub now, which is interesting. Did you just have pancakes last night, lads? Didn't touch them, John. I uh, no, didn't touch them. You can't make them. Shane Shane can't make them. I felt let down. Can you make them? No, I'm not a good cook. Maybe it's a resolution for Lance so that I could become a cook. But um, what's your go-to pancake? Oh, it's got to be the. There's no blasphemy involved. There's no. There's no. There's no cheating. There's none of the savoury stuff. It's got to be all lemon and sugar now. Can't be any of this savoury stuff. Oh. Although to be fair, like last night, I had salted caramel on one, I had maple syrup on another. So bacon and maple syrup, the classics. I'm telling you. Yeah. Jerry's influenced by North American culture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't wrong with that? Yeah, We're open yeah. to many and, and other other parts of the world of other interesting cultures too. Yeah, yeah. more power to you. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, uh, we'll obviously get an update as well from the Irish camp later today. And then the women's team play China at one o'clock, folks, today in Marbella in this uh, training camp ahead of the World Cup, one of many.
Keep an eye on our social channels. We'll keep you up to date on how Ireland are getting on against China. Cathy McNamee is in Marbella for us. It is 8.54. More from John, of course, on Saturday afternoon on Off the Ball on News Talk. Uh, but it's time for us to turn our attention back to rugby. Derek McNamara is back with us. Derek, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Derek. How are you? Another it's, um, Welsh deadline day. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a bit depressing, really, isn't it? Mm. You know? it? It's mad they can't sort it out because there's so much money slushing around rugby that, um, you know, Anyway, there's a, there's a whole hour long um, conversation around that. Uh, I, I'm right, like I I've been thinking about it on the way in, and I, like, you know, it's there's there's kind of like issues there that could be resolved, you know. And but it's the problem is, in reality, is is that we we need to start treating this like a professional sport, you know. Like there's there's situations like this where they're coming up each time, and the old guard that are there that have been there since the amateur days are still there in in all of the unions. Yeah. And they, they need to move on and allow the new guard come through. And, and, you know, the players the players themselves need to be much more involved in this situation themselves, you know. What are the, um, what are the UK papers? I don't want to misattribute it, but they are making the point that this is the beginning of the player power, which has happened in all professional sports. And some professional sports have been really good at it and others haven't. The PFA have managed to get a share of the TV revenue that is baked into all of their contracts and they also managed to get a share of the revenue that came from FIFA. Mm. And so the players' unions are really rich. Now, what they've done with that money might not necessarily be uh, great. They spent a lot of money on art and they spent like massive amounts of money on their chief executive. Uh, so you would maybe argue that although they well, they won the money, they, um, they didn't spend it very wisely, but it'll be there for them in the future. I've often wondered why aren't the rugby players a bit more active about their own health, the concussion laws... And their share of the pie. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, look. No, but like it, it, it's that is that is quintessentially it. Like the other sports have done it. It's, mm. it's naive of, of of rugby and people that are involved in rugby not to realise that other sports have done this. Like rugby league, this has happened where thirty years after the implementation of professionalism, there was a change. It was the game evolved. It happens in American football every ten years. Player players come to bargaining agreements. Yeah. You can argue that they haven't done a very good job in American football either. I, I, I don't think they have. I think there's loads of things that, where they could have got but a bigger share of the pie. at least those players have a seat at the table. At least those players are there under that bargaining agreement so that they know how much of the piece of the pie is theirs. And they are also there as a result of, of agreeing to what rules that are agreed upon around um, injuries or, you know, sites or fines. Like, like the Owen Farrell incidents. You know, at least at least that the players would have an agreement that that's how, what if this person does this that this fine is implemented. But you know, all, all of this as well. You know, the, the things around the um, salaries are going to come into question soon enough. Where you know, the salary cap has remained you know questionable in most of these unions, and it's going to be amateuristic. You know, the way it is, it's, it's going to remain amateuristic. And it wasn't that long ago that the American football salaries were were, were quiet, you know, were the same, in a similar situation. <clears throat> and it's only in the last ten years has it become oh that player is getting this money over a certain amount of years. Yeah. So that, that all this is going to have to change. But the, the overall issue with rugby, you know, and like you just look at the Netflix situation. So, you know, the Netflix situation was it's a very similar situation where it's just you know, amateuristic views like I'm, I'm nearly positive that the, the teams themselves would have editorial finish on that on any of that content that goes out you know the teams would have to give it the okay so the idea that any anything would be shared or, or, or you know lost is 
you know, if it doesn't happen in cricket or tennis or or NFL or F1, it's not going to happen in rugby. Um, let's talk about the situations because yeah. yeah. that definitely we could we could spend a fair bit of time getting into that. Yeah. Um, so you, there's been a down week this week, an opportunity for you to compare and contrast all of the different teams. And um, what have you come up with for us this week? Yeah, I suppose um, I I think the, a piece around the. Um, uh, what was the six for Ireland that I did a couple of weeks ago? Peter Manny. Peter Manny, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Went down quite well and it was like, oh, it was underutilised or underappreciated player. And what, what we did was, we, what we do is we've, we've, we've been working really, really hard in trying to encapsulate everything that goes into the game and give it a, a weight towards, you know, specific positions. So second rows do this, you know, back rows carry more, but they also rook and they tackle. They don't do as much line hits. So what we've done is is that we've done this for uh, every single position and we've weighted it based on, you know, what what's important for that position. Um, and I think we've got a slide here just around the uh, second rows. So this is jersey number five. Um, basically what we've done here is all the uh, Six Nations, this is competition prior to and during Six Nations, we basically grade and rank each position um, based on the kind of core metrics. So... Um, rucking, carrying, tackling, lineouts, passing, mall, turnovers. There's more than this, but that's that's the the basic of it. And when we we take all these kind of metrics, we we can then identify who's the best player at each position based on what they're doing and how well they're doing these things. Um, and James Ryan comes out on top, and you know he he's kind of a player that's kind of been lost a little bit amongst the the different. Um, players that are you know coming to the fore for Ireland you know but he's a real leader he looks after the line out he um, but it's the big thing that he's you know significantly improving or you know one of the main reasons why Ireland has improved is, is because of his tackling and because of his defensive um, impact on the game um, and this is just a slide that we've kind of come up with um, so it's tackle grade for, for, to, uh, yeah. we should maybe go back to the first one there yeah. just to, to show uh, him versus other people so in the first one it's um, you've got him at number one um, Chesham is number two Gilchrist of Scotland is three Roots of Italy is four Paul yeah. Willems of, of France is five uh, and the difference is, is like so again I don't know what these grades mean fully but um, mm. James Ryan's 76.9 Chesham's 73.3 and Willemse is 70.1. So these grades, is that out of 100? It's out of 100. So in each each skill set, you start off with an opportunity of getting 100. The closer you are to being at the top of each skill set, the closer you are to 100. So and the fact that um, James Ryan needs to kind of work a little bit on his on his rooking, for instance, or his decision-making at the rooking, if he's able to improve that, he, his overall grade will move up closer to that 100. Um, but the fact that he's number one at, at tackling and at line-out means there's a significant difference between him and the guys that are behind him. And so that 76 is a blended score of all the other constituent parts that make that up and that yeah. breaks down, cascades down. And we, we do this for every position. So for the likes of um, centre, we would look more at carrying and, and tackling. While, you know, here we'd be looking at mauling and uh, line-outs. Obviously, we wouldn't want to do that for, for a centre or a full-back. But we, we were able to do this in all these different different ways. But you know, if we go on to the next slide, then we can kind of just go into what what the tackling grade is comes from. You know, so basically, when we look at the tackle grade, <clears throat> we look at 
uh, tackle and grade. We look at the production. So how much of the tackling he's been involved in? Okay, so I'll just so yeah. this is uh, he's graded number one in in, in tackles, right? And yeah. your tackle grade has tackle production, contact point, gain line success, distance, frequency, and assist, and then. You grade each of those, and then yeah. they, they come together to give you your tackle grade. Yeah. So, like for instance, the tackle point would be the, the we have the game line, and basically the player who uh, makes first contact uh, behind the game line the most, and we average those those scores. We then that person then is the number one, and James is ranked number six. Game line success would be you know the, the ability of the opposition player to get back to the game line, or the defensive player to stop that player. He's ranked number eight. And then distance is the actual distance from contact to where the, the tackle ends. And James is 10th of, he's right in the middle of the pack. But then as frequency, we say, <clears throat> how many tackles were on the pitch while James was on the pitch? How many of them were he was he involved with? And then we give a ratio. Of, and then we then that way we can say what his ratio is like to all okay. of the players okay. at the same position. Uh, that, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that ratio is interesting because it yeah. means that, um, you know, if... if uh, it signifies your importance to the, the rest of the team as well that you're part of that yeah. that effort and you can actually be very important in that effort or you know it's because the team can not have many tackles because you can be dominating the game you can make three or four and look like um, you're amazing but otherwise if a team is making those tackles and you're also at least at your your average then I can see how that score begins to make sense yeah no and it's it's something that we do for for tackle for breakdowns for passing for kicking we we, we want to identify who are the players that are mostly impacting in the game same with malls as well mall is a big one where you don't have you know you only have one or two players Josh van der Fleer does it for Ireland where he takes the ball off the, the line of jumper and he's the guy that could basically everything runs around in the mall but it's just that the, the, we want to try and represent the impact that each player is having on the game and you know it's not just about tackling it's not just about carrying it's not just about line out it's everything pulled together and in behind those skill sets and behind those numbers we then have another 20 different things that we're, we're taking into consideration Is it maybe even more impressive Ryan stats given that France have been one of the the, the opposing teams like I don't know if they're weighted for, for, for opposition as such but the fact that he's played France already make those stats even more impressive yeah, we do we do weight it towards for at a team perspective, but when we do it for an individual, we, we do slightly put it in for for um for your opposition, but not not as much as we would for the team perspective. But um it's like the 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 individual players can only do what they're supposed to do once they're out in the pitch, if that makes sense. So James Ryan's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it turns out he's he's pretty amazing. Well you got you, you got uh, Peter Mahoney a central contract based yeah. on the, the last conversation, so Yeah, you know, I'm waiting James for Ryan's buzzing here. Waiting for that ten percent now, actually. You know, <laughs> I think we'll be waiting. But uh, no, like it's it's just I suppose the point of what we're trying to say here is, you know, and like you know, fans and and, and consumers and and people that are interested in this stuff, they can actually log into our website and actually, you know, interact with this data to a certain extent. Never Every agent wait. in the world is suddenly like, oh, okay. I've actually had a few of them contact me in the I'm last sure. week or two. They're like, hey, what about this? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so it's all it's all going all moving forward anyway, going the right direction. Um, so, is there are there lessons to be learned apart from the fact that, like, you know, obviously you're explaining the bits, the constituent parts that make James Ryan the outstanding number five jersey. You were saying, yeah. Uh, over the course, is there anything else? Like, so the bit where it's beneficial is like if if you improve your rooking, is he like, well, actually, part of my role is not to be that person, or is it just here? These are the little work on. Well, so like with rooking is like 
again, we look at rooking frequency, we look at rook arrival time, we look at rook accuracy, we look at rook... Um, okay, so there's constituent parts which maybe he could improve. Yeah, and that's yeah. That's the benefit of this from, from their perspective. Exactly, and that's okay. that's what we... That's, that's our bread and butter, is, is helping players to identify specific areas of that they can work on because you know you, as a player you, you know, these, this is non-bias information we're not we're not looking at any particular player or, or position and saying oh I think he sh-, you know I like that player mm. <laughs> something to do with that it's it's more okay if, if you want to understand where you are based on the other players that are at your position and how you could slightly improve and make slow, small incremental gains then you know get in touch um, the next part is about game plans right mm. and um the patterns of play that have emerged over is it just, is it just the first two games of the Six Nations? Just first two games of the yeah. Six Nations, yeah, yeah. Okay. So this has been this is this is something that we've been working on for the last number of months. We've been collecting lots and lots of data, but now only now have we been able to start to actually use it and and try and tell a story uh, about what what teams are doing in different parts of the pitch. Um, so what 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 we do is we use the pitch position, we use the breakdowns, so where the breakdowns are happening. We use what direction the, the teams go in, and then um, average number of phases um, per 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 phase until the, they either kick the ball away or they get the ball turned over. And what we're showing, trying to show here, is is that in uh, defensive positions, so basically anything within thirty meters or scoring your opposition scoring position, Ireland tend to to spread the ball quite wide. Um, they'll go through one and a half phases and then they'll get rid of the ball. So this is in um, possession? This is in possession. So this is just just when, when teams have possession in our own half, in our own 22, Ireland do tend to spread the, the ball quite wide when they do have it. And then they'll try and find out, or, you know, maybe bring a defensive player kind of up out of, out of the line to try and get more space in, in behind and then they'll get rid of it. Um, Italy and Scotland, though, they will play with the ball a little bit more in their own half and then they'll they'll spread the ball. Uh, like Italy spread the ball the widest, which is you know you can see that in and, the games. And sorry, you can you're saying that they play with it a bit more. You can tell that because they have more breakdowns. Yeah, because they have more breakdowns okay. in their own in their own twenty two, and you can see that in the game. You know they they're they're they're, they're playing out of their own half basically. Um, and then when we move to, to midfield, so basically we we take midfield as the same. Slice type of area, and um, Ireland go from being one of the top kind of width player teams, so passing the ball quite wide, to being the lowest um, in the in the competition actually, um, and they've also got kind of second fewest number of breakdowns in this area. So what they're doing is they're they're getting the ball and they're getting the ball into attacking position or scoring position, and they're not spending too much time in the in the middle middle bit middle area. Okay. Um. Do you expect there to be significant changes as games three, four, and five get layered into this? No, I don't. Um, I think you, you, what you'll find is is certain teams will tr- will, will um, hone in on what they're trying to do, and and more players will become more aware of what what they're supposed to do in each part of the position of the of the pitch. But in reality, I, I, I these rugby isn't at the stage where teams are able to implement different game strategies mid game. You know, it's not. It's not like the NFL. It's not like different sports. Is there an element of game flow though that you don't anticipate? Like if 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 um, France had had a load of pressure on Ireland in R twenty two and it was taking us ages to get out, hmm. if they were better at that, would that have shown up and we would have ended up having more breakdowns just by virtue of the fact that France were showing us 
a picture in defence that was like, I don't like that. I'm going to wait a while. I don't like that. I'm going to wait a while. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not directly involved with any teams, so I don't, I don't actually know what they're trying to do. We, we can just basically measure what's going on in the game right now. So this is the, the evidence of the game plan so far. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, they, teams don't tend to change their style or the way in which they play. They more tend to, okay, Every the, the, the more accurate the data is, the more the game plan has been implemented and is understood by the rest of the team. So, so It's just a positive thing that we're spending less time in the midfield area. Like We're not wasting time in areas of the pitch where we're less likely to score, essentially. Yeah, correct. Like you can see Italy, Italy have the highest number of, of breakdowns in the midfield area. And that's their game plan. Their, their game plan is, is, oh, like if we get a... a um, you see it if they get a... a um, Sorry, penalty. penalty. Yeah, advantage. Sorry, advantage. Okay. They'll continue playing on. They won't just take the penalty. A lot of teams will stop and slow down and take the kick. But with Italy, they'll continue on. So they'll build pressure. They're trying to build pressure. They're trying to wear you down. Exactly. It's a lot of work for a little reward. Though. I was going to say, it feels yeah. a little bit like they're stuck in midfield. And, and exactly. And that and, and their their biggest issue is is that they're 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 two or three players short of having a really good team. And then when the, once those, that ball gets to those players, unfortunately things break down. Players make a small mistake, and that small mistake means then that everything else falls apart. You know, until they so. get Garbisi back this weekend and stuff Ireland. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, well, they were pretty good in midfield this week, uh, and all of a sudden, mm. yeah. So then I suppose um, what, what we're trying to show here is is you know that the average number of phases starts to tick up as we go into midfield. So you know we're we're in the one one to to you know late ones number of phases teams will go through. And then, you know, in midfield, teams are going through two phases um, to Italy that go through in 3.7 phases in this area. So we can see teams starting to try and implement and, and implement their game plan in these areas. Um, but then when we get into kind of scoring attack and, and in your oppositions, kind of just outside your 22, um, this is where Ireland, you know, really try to start to come, come, come good. Um, we can see that they have the most amount of breakdowns in this area. So basically we're talking about um, we, we split the attack into kind of two areas. We've got our goal line attack, which is around anywhere within around twelve to fifteen meters of the goal line. Red zone. Red zone. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I like color green zone myself Whatever, because it's yeah. like you know, it's, it's <laughs> where we, we we need to be tuned that's in. What, that's what people will understand. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then anything kind of behind behind that, kind of just before the twenty-two, and you know, in between kicking zone, this is where Ireland like to spend you know a lot of their time. What they do is they try to build pressure. They've got quite a narrow attack, so you know the second lowest um, uh, attack location. But they have the most amount of uh, phases of all. Um, so they've got, they go through seven point seven phases. And what that do is that's building pressure. That's that's trying to to cause mistakes by the defence. Get them the advantage so that then they can try and implement their play. Their or it's play. getting over the try line four times and being held up. Yes. Well, we so there's, a, there's swings yeah. roundabouts for this too, though, right? Yeah. Like if, if we thought that Italy were getting um, choked up in midfield, we're getting a bit choked up here. Is, is there an efficiency? No, well, we, we, we have our most amount in the in the red zone. So in the, the goal line zone, we have 89. In here, we have 57. So what we're saying here is is that they, they'd like to put the teams under pressure they like to, to play in this area they like to actually go to the phases and, and, and hold off the ball which we've yeah. seen it's a, it's like this is the evidence of your eyes is like there's pick and go pick and go pick and yeah. go pick and go at the goal and we're very rarely where we're you know 
James Lowe standing on the sideline. Come on, yeah, 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 But like, yeah, and that's and but then in, when we get to the actual goal line, we can actually see Ireland go through the number of phases. But also they, so we have a, a direction counter basically. If, if a player goes one way and then he goes another way, he goes again and again. We we basically keep counting until he goes back the opposite direction. Okay, and then we say, okay, when we average up those, we can then identify whether or not teams are playing in certain directions or not and we can see Ireland Ireland do do play in a certain direction so we'll hammer away when we think there's a weakness there we'll keep hammering yeah keep hammering in the same direction and yeah. do we want to keep the ball in play for as long as possible akin to the French game against Italy yeah yeah that's the way Ireland are going to play now you know the, and <clears throat> I think that's that's where the game will be won and lost I definitely think on Saturday um, you look at the you look at the way in which Italy played or France played against them in the first game and they just they, they played to their strengths you know they kicking the ball out of play letting their line out set letting them run nice lines directly off first phase that's not the way to play Italy the way to play Italy is, is keep them in play keep them under pressure you know make them make mistakes and then you know put the points on late in the second half Um uh, we didn't ask you to do any work on the France-Scotland game but uh, instinctively mm-hmm. do you think Scotland have any chance of turning France over? Uh, give us two seconds <laughs> I can tell you now um, I, I I do I do but um, it's going to be tough like I think Scotland probably have a couple of cracks I think France are there for the taking though you know like they haven't been what they they were the last couple of games um, yeah like they're they're front five are where they're they're better, you know. Definitely, they're 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 Scotland are much better than them in their their front five. Um, their halfbacks are not as good, even though Finn Russell does grade quite well and he had a very good game the last game. He's very hit and miss, and you know it, it, it's hard to tell whether or not he's a strength or a weakness of Scotland a lot of in a lot of the games he plays in because you know if if he's put under pressure. He always makes that skip pass. He can be he can be taken advantage of. For players like that, this level of analysis and data would be really really useful. The um, on the football pod this week, they were talking about the the use of the word mercurial and how it's never a really good thing. Ultimately, <laughs> if you know what that means, Jerry. if you're the player who's being described <laughs> as mercurial, um, there's an inbuilt understanding that flakiness will result from pressure. Yeah. Um, but that you're capable of doing stuff that nobody else can do. If, if like, as a 17, 18, 19, and 20 year olds, there was a, every time you do this, it results in this. Yeah. And somebody sat down and said, I mean, this is just, it, it's evidence based. It might knock a few of the rough edges off some of those mercurial players. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's exactly why I'm doing this. You know, it's why we're doing this, is to, to identify those players that work well under pressure. You know, the, 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 the last slide that we showed around the game plan. That's only the kind of start of what we're doing. We, we we also understand how pressure affects teams and individuals and passing. You know, we, we identify every pass, we identify the pressure of that player under that situation. So under, understanding players that do that on under, under 20s and, and schools, you know, we'll, we'll find those players that are like going like this rather yeah. than the players that yeah. get to 20 and they don't want to play rugby anymore because um, they're burnt out. So, uh, last question, Ireland are going to beat Italy? Yeah, I think they're going to beat them reasonably well. I'd say you'll see a similar situation um, where we we go through the first 20 minutes figuring it out. But Even with Ross Byrne in for Sexton? It, the, yeah. 
the drop off is no longer as significant or as pronounced as it used to be? Um, I just think we have too many good players. Um, is it Dan Sheen come back as well? Well, he might be on the bench. Yeah, but I could, he's he's a phenomenal ball carrier. You know, he takes that step every time he gets that ball. Yeah, gets over the game line. It's funny. It's one of those uh, things in world sport that you know is coming but can't stop the Dan Sheen step because he steps and you're like, oh, I'm going to attack him. And then yeah, smashes you. Like, yeah, and and also he's faster than nearly everybody else, which is you know you don't you don't see that. But I yeah I think I think you'll see. I hope the Wales game goes ahead. I really do. Mm. But whether right. it does or not is another question. Very good stuff. Thanks very much. Cheers. For more, check out reactrugby.com. Here's what's on OTV Sports Radio across the day. You can listen to OTV Sports Radio on our sports app, by the way, or you can get it in Go Loud. You just flick across, and it's uh, non-stop, continuous, top-quality sports content in your earballs. Uh, OTV Gold at 1 o'clock is our Irish football special. Uh, leaders' questions from three with Stuart Lancaster. Our retro panel is on gambling and addiction, and OTV Gold is Colin Gooch Cooper. Joe will be back tonight from 7 with Wednesday Night Rugby and plenty more besides, including, uh, of course, live updates on the uh, Man City game and reaction to the Republic of Ireland game against China this afternoon from Kathleen OTB AM with Gillette get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs razor with exfoliating bar Right before we get into this obviously you've just heard a clip from the football pod there with uh, James and Paddy and Tommy the football pod is in partnership with AIB Proud Football Hurling and Camogie All-Ireland Club Championships. Uh, proud sponsors, check out the hashtag the toughest for more. Quite enjoyed the background music to the commercial reads. I thought it, it added something. Certainly is uh, more interesting. Uh, everyone's favourite part of the week, Jer, around the world, as we all know by this stage. Even Adrian Barry's come on board uh, and uh, starting to embrace it for what it uh, is. That's fake news. It's fake news. <laughs> You can be the, the grumpy old man this week if you want. Oh, um, no, I'm not, I'm not grumpy about this at all. Not at all. Uh, we're going to start in Canada. Uh, so we, we heard a little bit earlier on, Katie McCabe was wearing the, the One Love armband for the match. This, of course, being the infamous One Love armband that um, Harry Kane and uh, a number of other captains at the recent World Cup in Qatar refused to wear or decided not to wear for fear of picking up a yellow card. Um, but the Canadian women's team wearing purple shirts uh, displaying the words, Enough is Enough. As a protest ahead of their She Believes Cup match recently against the United States, you can see a, a statement up on the screen there from uh, from the players. Tonight our players will be, will be wearing purple as a symbol of protest. Purple has historically been associated with efforts to achieve gender equality. Considering the current circumstances, our players will continue to wear purple until our association has standards in place that ensure equal treatment and opportunity. This is a bit of a trend that seems to be drumming up across football associations around the world. Uh, so complaining about the level of funding essentially from Canada soccer in comparison to the men's team and when you look at the Canadian women's team they've been I mean world beaters slightly more successful than their men Uh, just a little bit just a little bit and of course the men getting to the World Cup and having a bit of success in in December but the women's team have been there done that and clearly had the the consistency level so they had uh, a 2-0 defeat to the US and Florida of late players from both teams in fact wearing purple tape as well on their wrists Uh, the CSBA the Canadian uh, Association then releasing a statement uh, from the players saying Canada Soccer told us that they consider our job action to be an unlawful strike and that quote if we did not return to work they would not only take legal action to force us back to the pitch but would consider taking steps to collect what could be millions of dollars in damages so a bit of a PR uh, disaster for the CSBA and uh, this whole incident the fact that the US team supported them as well and wore those purple wristbands kind of emphasising the need for, for action on this one uh, Christine Sinclair one of, the, one of the players tweeting at the time as well to be clear we're being forced back to work for the short term this is not over 
We will continue to fight for everything we deserve and we will win. The She Believes is being played in protest. So they could have, of course, pulled out of this game, not decided to play, uh, decided not to play the game against America and had a bit of an impact that way. But they decided, no, we're actually going to play the match and protest in that regard and, and have our purple shirts and, and purple wristbands and, and bring a little bit of attention to it. And I think that was probably the right move in the end. They've you know, inadvertently brought more, I guess, heat on the CSBA and, and the Canadian um, Association, the Canada Soccer, saying Canada Soccer has heard the women's national team players has committed to a path to addressing each of the demands made by the players. But Canada Soccer knows that is not enough. There is still work to do. So a bit of a climb down based on the protest. Yeah, and uh, I suppose that's the whole point of uh, protests. They're supposed to work. Um, uh, Shane, I, I do have a question. That, yeah, here we go. Why, um, why didn't you, why didn't you bring us report slash footage? Sometimes we're allowed to use footage in this slot and sometimes, sometimes. we're not. Just, um, again, revealing a bit too much information there. But uh, I see there's some footage on your own Instagram account. Oh, right. Oh. Here I am. It's me on the right-hand side. It's obviously a training game because you're wearing the same shirts. That's a bit of a dirty kick. Uh, no, Kutil, or sorry, Kevin Town are wearing green. You can't really tell. We have a turquoise blue sort of top. No, they're the same. The point of this, and you're going to have to play this again. But Get away shirts. What? A, like, someone needs to wear white. The point of this, right? What colour are you, lads? We're blue. What colour are you? Kind of greeny blue. Okay. What about the colour blind? With all due respect, like... The, the lighting was quite poor in, in the video. I, I can promise on the pitch. So the... I obviously passed the ball there. That's Hannah with the ball. This hiding t- on the right wing. That tackle was late. You can hear the you can hear the crunch. But that's the point, Jeremy. I went over to him, made sure he was okay. Not once, not twice. But when he stands up again, here's a little. Yeah, you all right, man? Yeah, you're grand. You see, I, he was the the right back for Cavan, and we had had a bit of a chat at the start of the second half, waiting for the game to start restart. And we'd kind of had a little bit of a bonding session. Oh, you're a matey chat. So yeah, I didn't actually know that. It's not the killer. You need to be there. No, I still scored in that match, and we won four three. So that that's that's all that matters, Jer. So you're faking it with him, like, oh, I tell you what I'll do. Well, I'll kill him with pretend, kindness. Pretend to be friends, and then I'll I'll, I'll kill him with the tackle. You got to distract them. I, I got to say though, the the can we just roll this one more time? You don't actually touch him. Listen, listen though. You'll hear the crunch. Well. Oh, it's a little bit of a kick. He he hits the ball. That's dive. the sound you're hearing. You know what? I, I'm going to get on board with you here, Jerry. Dive. He dived. They didn't touch him at all. Calvin divers. Sorry, lads. You need to change a kit. Someone needs to sponsor. Calvin Town or Monaghan Town? Actually, yeah, Monaghan Town. We're, we're more than willing to. to it's Monaghan Town versus Calvin Town. It should be like the the greatest BV. It should be Springfield versus Shelbyville. Oh. Like really, nobody knows anything about these two towns, and they're not even the best, most important towns in the own counties that are named after them. Well, to me, Monaghan Town is the most important town in the world. But we were two one down at half time. We got we were three two down then, then as well, Jaron. Late on, Real Madrid esque. Yeah, it was very good comeback. So glad that around the world took us all the way to Calvin as well for. Uh, hey, for look, all spot. politics is local. Exactly. Um, so thank you and uh, yeah if anyone wants to sponsor Mon in town for, for New Jersey's or a pitch feel free we're always looking we're going to go next from Calvin to Australia Bathurst Australia to be precise uh, this was quite a, a tough watch in the video we're not going to play the video but we'll have a few stills for you so Latessin Betgide was the pre-race favourite in a world cross-country race so not exactly a small race it was very very important finishing line in sight Ethiopian looking like she's going to win the gold with ease and then metres and I mean metres from the tape the 24 year old falls and in the blink of an eye it's gone so that's the moment at which she falls it's almost like her legs collapse Um, really disappointing moment people then try to help her up 
it was a spectacular conclusion and then of course it's a Kenyan behind her to, just to uh, rub salt in the wounds because of course the Kenya-Ethiopia battle always very very uh, intense at cross-country level she was helped over the line as you can see there that image by some Ethiopian um, officials but uh, Beatrice Shebe then overhauling Gide with an impressive final kick uh, so it was the uh, Gide is a well-known athlete as well she's a, um, a top athlete in her own right but Shebe is the world 5000 metre silver medalist sprints towards her overtakes her and uh, to make matters worse Gide who falls over she's the reigning world uh, 10,000 metre champion by the way she was disqualified so that last photo you saw of outside assistance from the uh, Ethiopian officials uh, and the supporters as well jumping the fence to assist her leads to her disqualification so even when she does eventually cross the line it's uh, it's pointless she's disqualified Instagram post then she puts up after the race she says I'm doing well thank you for all the messages I will be back uh, be Back. Today was a good race with a sad ending for me. Let's take the good forward to the future. Uh, Michael Johnson, the Olympic great as well, getting involved in this. He tweeted afterwards saying, Wow, heartbreaking for Latessa and Bet of the World Cross Country Champs, literally just metres from the tape. The, uh, the moral of this story, Jer, from this story in Australia, it's never over until it's over. No matter what sport it's in, whether you're 3 2 down to Cavan Town with 10 minutes to play or you're in a, in a World Cross Country final. It's never over till it's over. So uh, one of the lessons from around the world this week. Our next segment in Around the World, we're going all the way to the Alps. This is a bit of a concerning story, Jerry guess, and to uh, bring my inner Johnny Ward, climate change warrior, to the show this morning. Uh, but this is very much a story that's, that's concerning. Top skiers have signed a letter to the International Ski and Snowboard Federation, which are the FIS, demanding action over the climate emergency. There's a depressing stock photo of... Uh, Melting snow on um, ice uh, ski abs. And there's another stock photo of a, a snowman, very sad-looking snowman, melting with a, a pot on his head. Uh, but a notable lack of snow in uh, this uh, skiing season that's currently ongoing across Alpine resorts. Holidaymakers disappointed. Uh, some ski tournaments have been called off as well. So no more guaranteed snow at the top of some of these um, uh, ski resorts. A lot of places are moving their ski season to be changed to keep up with climate breakdown. They've suggested shifting it from the start of the season uh, from late October to late November and the end of the season from mid-March to late April. So uh, the Norwegian racer, Alexander Amod Kilda, has been speaking on this. He said, we see that the world is changing. We also see the impact of our sport. I want the future generations to experience winter and to be able to do what I do. This is a letter signed by 200 athletes, by the way, so it's it's no small fry. Um, and it really is an issue that uh, is, is taken... A lot, turning a lot of heads. So the Alps, just to put this into context for uh, viewers and listeners, the Alps experienced record high temperatures over Christmas and New Year, 20.9 degrees Celsius in northwest Switzerland. Uh, so besides measures to reduce their own emissions, a lot of these resorts are planning ahead for a time when, when skiing is no longer viable. Even low-altitude resorts as well in Europe, snow depth is shrinking by 3 to 4 centimetres every 10 years, which is a mad rate of uh, disappearance. And then you've got the glaciers disappearing as well, which uh, is not helping. Uh, 2017 studies saying the Alps could lose up to 70% of their snow cover by 2100. So this is an issue that's not going away anytime soon, Jarp, but uh, one I just wanted to raise on Around the World this morning. Finally, we're heading to Canada again, Toronto, Canada. And uh, this is quite a, a lovely story because it had a happy ending. The Toronto Blue Jays manager, John Schneider, saving a woman's life after he saw her choking in a restaurant the team announcing on social media a lovely story a lovely story well it, it had a happy ending you'll see the statement there from the Toronto Blue Jays manager John Schneider was out at lunch with his wife when a woman at another table was choking and couldn't breathe Schneider rushed to her aid performed the Heimlich manoeuvre and saved her just another day in the life as they say in their statement he's 43 uh, a life saving response 
big lad as, as well, six foot three. He says he learned the manoeuvre in school. This is what I wanted to bring this up for. So he says, I learned it about sixth grade, hadn't thought about it since. So it was like, I think I remember how to do this. I'm a bigger guy, so I think that helped a little bit. But no, I hadn't thought about the Heimlich manoeuvre since grade six. So both parties returned to their meals. His reward for saving her life was a free beer. So there's your beer for, uh, for saving her life. Uh, he says he wasn't looking for a pat on the back. Uh, his wife, John Schneider's wife, said uh, he was so calm reacting to the incident. So it happened in downtown Dunedin about two weeks ago. She said he gracefully gets up, doesn't panic. The way he held this cool, you would have thought he was managing a wild card game. It was so graceful. Do you know the Heimlich manoeuvre? I mean, I've seen it on TV. You yeah, like put your hands under the lungs and you... Something along those lines. That's, that's the physical, technical term. So that, that is a very uh, visceral and dynamic uh, interpretation of what it is. Henry Heimlich. This is, this is why I wanted to bring this up. So he, there's Henry Heimlich on the left of the, of the, of the uh, photo there. I would, have said, I would have said that guy was like 1800s. Yeah, I know. He's still alive. No, he's not still alive. Oh, but this Jesus. Is, that would have been the best news of the morning. Sorry. That's a good news story. The man who invented the Heimlich manoeuvre... This He's is, still alive! This is what I wanted to bring this up for. Henry Heimlich was born in 1920 and died in, in uh, 2016. So he only oh, died nice. six years ago, right? Jesus. He, it, so in 1974... they would have made more of him when he was dying. I know. Like, Here, lad, this, this guy's literally... I didn't hear he, about this. Anyway. So in that photo, yes, he was old. He was 96 in that photograph. In 1974, he created this life-saving manoeuvre and the American Medical Association gives it his name after Henry Heimlich. Uh, he was eating a steak on that day of that photograph at 96 in his final year in 2016 in the dining room of the Dupree House, which is a senior living community in Cincinnati, Ohio, where he was staying. And this woman next to him starts to choke. Ah, oh, no way. And he says uh, she had all the signs of it because, as I say, her lips were puffed out. She obviously wasn't breathing. A uh, hundred diners looking on. He stood up at 96 years of age, spins the victim around, launches into his namesake, uh, namesake technique, places around, you described it yourself, what you have to do. He says um, he's, he's demonstrated the manoeuvre many times throughout his career as a chest surgeon, but that was the first time he ever had to use it in, hey. a, in a matter of life and death. At 96, himself oh, only a few months away from his, from his own death. Uh, apparently it saves more than uh, 50,000 lives in the US alone every year, the Heimlich manoeuvre. So a lovely end to the whole story. So the Toronto Blue Jays manager, the good news story, and Henry Heimlich, uh, RIP, who performed the manoeuvre for the first time. In his, own, in his own final year. What a lovely story, Ger. Again, justified the existence of the slot just at the end there. Well done. There you go. That's this week's. Until next week. Uh, okay. Um, a lot of reaction to a lot of the stuff that we've done so far this morning. Um, Netflix should have been told to bugger off their 150 grand. 150 grand is peanuts. Mm. That one is from Adrian McGrath. Uh, we'll, we'll ask for the Tyg Burn uh, comparison that uh, Pascal Jacob is looking for there and then uh, beef the beef between our South African followers uh, who hate comment and those who obviously uh, just like the top quality sports content that we provide and then the Irish rugby fans is like uh, is always a little bit of sunshine in our life uh, imagine being that afraid of James Ryan you wake up an hour early to post on rubbish talk on Irish sports broadcast says HC I don't know are we rubbish talk or is is the um, poor man's Evan Etzebeth mm. crack about James Ryan is that the rubbish talk I can't I can't decide from our commenters if they think we're just the rubbish and everybody's hate watching us including the Irish fans yeah yeah it's, catchy it's uh, rubbish talk. talk welcome to rubbish talk no um, I, th- I, I like to think they're not slagging us they're just having a little bit of beef with their South African friends Klopp lost his charisma and I don't think he can recapture it at Liverpool says Michael Um and then somebody else making the point wouldn't a strike be a great angle for a Six Nations Netflix series says Harburn Six I mean that is 4D chess yeah 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 well it's true uh, well it, the conspiracy theorists will start to come out they're like oh yeah they, they, so the, the year they start filming the golfers Netflix 
the live breakaway happens. They start filming the Six Nations and this Welsh strike happens. Formula One got away with most of the... Well, actually, Formula One had the, the, the disaster of, of Hamilton and Verstappen and Abu Dhabi, but, uh, I mean, turns out Netflix have a curse. So maybe don't. And, and sorry, the money, you, you mentioned the 150000 it's nowhere near enough. Um, and look, maybe if it's successful, they'll get more in the second season. And it's really about growing the game and making money for Netflix, who are like a bigger corporation than... You know anything else that's mm. out there at the moment? So I don't know. It's it's an interesting. Uh, it's, it is an interesting thing. The other side of this is that um, apparently the new Drive to Survive is quite good. I haven't seen it, but um, I know some people who have seen advanced copies and they're actually yeah. they think it is still good. But the response to the golf one has been mediocre, and the response to the tennis one has been mediocre. So we'll see about the rugby. But everybody's like, oh, we need a Drive to Survive for GA. We need it for swimming. We mm. need it for. And it turns out that like there's there, that demand for that stuff is not that elastic. No. Some sports just aren't that interesting. But flying the wall stuff in GA is very interesting. Like we saw it with the Yertle Sunday. That stuff is unbelievable. I mean, you know, what's rare is wonderful. That was 1998. Yeah, and it hasn't been. So Ross did something with um, with AIB. I actually didn't see it in the end, but maybe maybe there's room for more. Yeah, the year they won Connacht, wasn't it? As well, so like it doesn't always turn into a curse. Go win the All Ireland in '98 when it happens as well. Maybe the trick is it really isn't a curse. No, it's not a curse. Get the filming crews in. Only Mayo are cursed. And sure, look, <laughs> it's over now. But so. you can always film, and then sure, if if you have a terrible year or something goes drastically wrong, just don't release the footage. Don't bother. Why would Why would you bother? Um, so yeah, the, sorry. On the comment on on Klopp, the maniacal smile, as you call it, uh, after the third, fourth, fifth goals really starts to annoy me I was chatting to some Liverpool mates of mine as well and it it, it annoys them as well like, is it, why? I know he does it but why are you smiling it's, I mean because it's not real it's like uh, why are you laughing in times of crisis why are you crying when you're happy I don't think you can't be getting annoyed about someone's facial reactions is it like the people laughing at funerals and stuff like you know when you're supposed to not laugh you just tend to laugh the most so maybe that's what Clapp is doing here like he knows he shouldn't be laughing because they're after conceding a fifth goal at home in a, in a Champions League fixture against Real Madrid. But he does laugh. Um, but look, it looks like it looked like an unbelievable atmosphere last night. I'm going to be I'm going to be in Old Trafford tomorrow night for the uh, for the Barcelona fixture. That's going to be cracking. I know a lot of United fans are heading over as well and set up nicely at two two. So I think uh, I think it's going to be a good atmosphere tomorrow night. All right. Um, are you on? I'm going. Oh, right. It's going to be in nice. Old Trafford. Okay. It, like, I think the, the Paul Scholes Champions League semi-final second leg in 08. I was listening to Andy Mitten on the Talk of the Devils podcast there recently. He was saying that was the greatest atmosphere there has been at Old Trafford this century since 2000. And they're expecting tomorrow night to be even better. So, okay. looking forward to being there. All right. We have uh, some breaking news this morning. It is 9.37 and we are um, given to understand that John O'Shea is going to be joining the Republic of Ireland coaching tickets. Um, obviously, we've been looking for a replacement uh, as that extra coaching role alongside Stephen Kenny and Keith Andrews. Um, recently, Anthony Barry had been linked to a return having left uh, Belgium, but uh, he'd gone to Portugal. Barry was obviously replaced in the Irish staff by John Eustace, who was just there for a short window before he left to become the manager of Birmingham City. And then the job has been vacant since then. I think Stephen Rice, the chief analyst, had stepped up to fulfil some of those duties. But... Um, Stephen Kenny had been looking around for a replacement for Anthony Barry and the news is breaking this morning here on OTBAM that uh, we believe it's going to be John O'Shea who is coming in 
to join the coaching ticket. Uh, you're two Manchester United fans. Colin has rejoined us. Um, kind of, yeah. That's uh, exciting news. Very exciting news for John O'Shea, Manchester United legend, Republic of Ireland legend, of course. Mm. Um, and like pulling up trumps in the coaching world since his retirement, I believe he's going to be staying with Stoke City. This is going to be a dual job, kind of like what Roy Keane used to do at Aston Villa and Ireland. And I know from um, I know one player involved in Stoke City in the in the youth setup. I know his family, and they speak extremely highly of John O'Shea as a coach, both in terms of his tactical uh, knowledge and nuance, and also his man management skills. So he seems to have an equally big coaching career ahead of him as he did on the pitch. And finally, I think you know the Anthony Barry void could be filled here by a very very promising coach that obviously we're biased about but really CRC does look like he has a future and you hear that from a Stoke player who has nothing to do with the Irish setup. He's got an aura as well like I think our current young players all know John O'Shea they're like well this guy this is the king of Gelsenkirchen this is the guy who nutmegged Luis Figo who uh, scored that goal against Arsenal and didn't know how to celebrate like he's a legend so uh, I think he did his UEFA pro license in December so it's probably that kind of thing where you get the pro license done and straight away the FBI are like well You've done. You've ticked the boxes now, so come on in. And again, yeah, I know a League of Ireland coach who did his uh, license with O'Shea, and again, couldn't speak more highly of his just passion and knowledge for football. It's beyond the fact that he was a, a legend for club and country. You know, mm-hmm. this guy seriously knows the game, like in the style that say a, a Graham Potter would be full of knowledge and come to the game without much of a, a professional background himself. But O'Shea actually has both. So look, this is very exciting. Right ahead of the France game as well. Um, trying their best, you know, like everybody really wants this Stephen era, Stephen Kenny era to be a success, regardless of whether you want Kenny to stay in the job or not. And the fact that we have a coach of um, of this quality coming on board, especially you know when Damien Duff left, that was a big void and Anthony yeah. Barry, and now we have a a coach that everyone's getting excited about too. And the fact that he's passionately joining this setup is it's a great start to the year. I was over at Reading in 2019 when uh, when O'Shea that was his first year as a first team coach with Reading, and like they similar to the Stoke story, they spoke in such positive terms about John O'Shea they were like no this guy this guy's brilliant and that was his first year I think as a as a coach so clearly he's cut his teeth under Jim Crawford at the 21s cut his teeth at Reading and Stoke he's ready like, yeah, this I is mean, a big one I would love to see his coaching side in action but if you're going to base uh, on anything it's the fact in his playing career I think he played in every single position on the pitch including in goal <laughs> uh, against Tottenham and White Hart Lane so you're definitely learning as you're going you're picking up knowledge you said least, he could teach Queevy at, at least, yeah at least the base knowledge of absolutely everything and uh, a jack of all trades but also a master of a few by the sounds of it well, and um, you know uh, and, and has worked under some very interesting managers and has seen managerial styles from every end of the spectrum I, like uh, with John O'Shea you were always hoping that he was going to get involved with the Ireland setup at some point that his career was going to build to a point where something like this made sense and you know so many of the players that we've seen get into management use their reputation to get a first team job to get the managerial job straight away John O'Shea hasn't done that he's gone off and learned and taken his time and you know gone down the divisions um, with his career and has now seen what it's like to be in a world class elite environment Champions League winning level to uh, lower lower level football and I think you know he's going to have a much better understanding of um, what the requirements of the position are um, I, like I don't know it, obviously it doesn't make a blind bit of difference where he comes from but it's nice that like an Irish legend is now part of that coaching ticket and that we have links back all the way we'll obviously hear from David Miler David Miler played alongside him uh, at club level as well so we'll get some insight as to what c- kind of person he is but like the fact that he's played under Alex Ferguson I mean and now he's involved in the coaching setup I'm not getting too carried away but that's a good sign he's, he's picked up some th- some things you'd imagine 
from Fergie over the years. Um, well, well, yeah, look, I, I think it does matter where he comes from. I, it's reason to get excited about because of the phenomenal career he had, but also the fact that, you know, unlike, say, uh, Stephen Jordan or Frank Lampard, I'm not just picking on those two, he hasn't jumped straight into management. You know, he is really learning the ropes from the start here and he's done his work quietly so far. And for me, at the moment, this seems like a perfect progression yeah. to eventual management. And maybe, but maybe he actually does just want to be a coach and would see that progress in the next year but exactly a month out before the Latvia friendly on the 22nd of March and then five days before the France game we're suddenly looking in a far better position and I know this is just one appointment today but if this works out well this is good for the squad My crystal ball is that the manager at the 2030 World Cup for which Ireland will undoubtedly qualify as one of 48 teams in USA, Mexico and Canada John O'Shea will be our manager Well, I, I, Look I think you know, if you're thinking in terms of well-run organisations, Connacht have today appointed somebody from within. It means that that handover is seamless. Like, at some point in the future, there is now going to be somebody who will be an automatic candidate for the head coaching role or the manager's role or whatever the official title is whenever the Stephen Kenny era finishes. And I think this this reflects really well on Stephen Kenny because he knows that. Like, when we were talking before about potential candidates to replace Kenny... You know, Chris Hutton's name will come up and then the slew of English managers who might be available will come up and everybody else, like, there aren't a whole heap of qualified Irish candidates who are within the system. Mm. But John O'Shea's name was mentioned in dispatches and so I think this reflects really well on Stephen Kenny that he's willing to say, yeah, look, I understand that if I end up not being the manager, you're probably going to end up being the most likely candidate to replace me. But I have enough confidence in my ability and I have enough confidence in your ability to help me to progress this team and get us to where we want to go so I think it's positive from that perspective I think uh, like you can't ignore this but John O'Shea has a lot of support from the Irish football public and also from pundits right mm. much harder to slag off an Ireland setup when you're like you know John O'Shea's in there and he's gone about this the right way he's been a stand up He's been an absolutely stand-up guy throughout his entire career. There's nothing ever except anybody saying, great professional, great fella, you know, never forgot his roots, never forgot who he was, absolutely was humble, uh, and at the same time, one of our best and most important players for the best part of a decade. Like, I think, you know, it's it's a really important, but like also not important, as, as important as just how good he's going to be at the job, which obviously, we, you know, we don't know just yet, but I do think it's going to help galvanise Irish football through a difficult period, because this group, as everybody says, even Richard Dunn in the paper says, like, look, this group, I mean, we would not have fancied this even when we had the best team that we had. The, yeah, that's 100%. They, they, like that Irish Euro 2012 squad, like a lot of them have gone into, you look at John O'Shea, Keith Andrews, John Walters, like a lot of them have gone, David Myler as well has been involved in Irish underage setups. So a lot of them and are heading is, into. Yeah, and is involved. And is. Yeah. Like they're, they're, a lot of them are going into coaching. I don't know if this is a, a trend of previous iterations of the Irish team, but it seems like a lot of that group have gone into coaching as opposed to media. They're all doing their little bits of media here and there as well, but it seems to be a lot of pro licenses and badges being done by, the, by that group, which is a good sign. Yeah, well, I'll say, look, he hit the ground running. He finished up his playing career at Reading and went straight into coaching there. I'd be really interested to hear what you know Michael O'Neill would have to say about his tenure at Stoke when mm. he appointed him, and just to hear from other people. And I, I know we will over the coming days and and weeks about just what type of kind of acumen he's actually bringing to the cause beyond the name John O'Shea. And I think that the the person who's least interested in the name of John O'Shea is John O'Shea himself, mm. and he actually really does want to get involved and in, on progressing as a coach. So look, it's exciting and. Um, it, it's a perfect build-up to the match, which is exactly a month away. Yeah, because I think there had been a long, lingering kind of, oh, I, what, what's the story with this? You know, but mm. like, So we got really high-end coaches 
to come and that's why they were leaving it wasn't that they were leaving you know obviously whatever happened with Duffer which I still don't fully understand exactly yeah. what happened with Duffer but um, you know again Damien Duff a galvanising figure and then he gets replaced by Anthony Barry who's still at Chelsea right uh, and is also going to be with Portugal you know so very high end and then Eusis is so good that he gets a job straight away like you know I, I think people are using this as a stick to be Kenny with oh he can't get his backroom team final I was like well I mean that's because he keeps getting really good people mm. that's what happens and he was able to attract them in the first place so I, look the culture war hopefully this is like a little uh, truce that we have now when it comes to the future of Irish football and I think um, O'Shea is staking his reputation here to be part of this and I think that's a good sign um, and we wish him all the best mm. I'm excited about it you'll have to update his LinkedIn Right here I have uh, John O'Shea, first team coach, Stoke City Football Club. When you can add another one now. Change it up. So we, uh, we of course, have reached out to the FAI for uh, um, confirmation of this, but uh, our information is uh, well sourced at this point that we expect John O'Shea to be linking up as the uh, new coach with the Republic of Ireland senior national team. I think that's France coming up as well. Like the, the 2009 memories, John O'Shea will remember. We all know what happened and yeah. Uh, yeah, he'll want his revenge. Did, did miss a sitter against France of course is that what you were talking about no we'll not talk about that <laughs> forget about it a chance to exercise some demons I believe they call it uh, in um, sporting cliche world uh, right that's the breaking news this morning that we expect John O'Shea to be ratified as a member of the uh, backroom team for Stephen Kenny a reminder OTB AM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day OTB AM with Gillette Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.